This is Jocko Podcast number 196 with Echo Charles and me, Jocko Willink. Good evening, Echo. Good evening. In November, MacArthur ordered a drive all the way up to the Yalu River, which divides North Korea and China. He made the infamous promise that his victorious troops would be home for Christmas. All the dailies were happy to hear this news. At this point, I was still at Quantico, and it looked as though the war would end before my classmates and I deployed. Then, on November 26th, the Chinese launched an immense surprise attack, routing all UN forces from coast to coast and trapping the US Marines at the Chosen Reservoir, outnumbering them by upwards of four to one. The action that followed became known as the Frozen Chosen. The Marines held their positions with very little support, totally cut off from the unprotected supply lines that MacArthur had stretched thin behind them. They fought in near Arctic conditions. Their canned rations froze, their limbs froze, men froze to death. The enemy used artillery to soften the Marine positions and then come at them with human wave attacks. The strategy was to charge the Americans, usually at night, when they were without air support. In some instances, frozen enemy dead were stacked in front of Marine fighting positions and used as sandbags. Needless to say, any Marine who survived Chosen became legend. It borders on absurd to think that I, a 23-year-old lieutenant with a degree from Yale, would soon be giving orders to men who had fought their way out of that cold hell. One such man I would go on to command was Gunther Dos, a German immigrant who was one of just 16 men in a rifle company of 200 plus to walk out of Chosen. For his actions, including faking his own death as Chinese soldiers disarmed him and probed the wound in his head, Dos was awarded the Silver Star and Purple Heart. As summarized in the following excerpt from, Silver, from his Silver Star citation, Private First Class Dos held his fire to prevent a premature disclosure of his of his position while the intense small arms, grenade, automatic weapons, and machine gun barrage continued. The fire continued with deadly accuracy, killing several and dispersing the others. With his weapon inoperative, as the foe persisted in the onslaught, Private First Class Dose hurled hand grenades to account for two more hostile soldiers as the bullets from an automatic weapon sprayed his position, wounding him and killing a Marine rifleman nearby. Fighting unconsciousness as the enemy moved closer, he feigned death as they felt the bullet hole in the top of his helmet, examined his blood-stained face and hands, and removed his weapon and cartridge belt. After seven agonizing hours during which he remained perfectly still, while the enemy, still believing him to be dead, occupied his foxhole, he surveyed the situation and made contact with an adjacent Marine unit after a friendly counterattack finally forced them to withdraw. After training, each Marine is assigned an MOS, or Military Occupational Specialty. The MOS for Infantry Officer is 0301. After Chosen, 
We at the Marine Corps Basic School took to calling it 03, oh shit. By year's end, 1950, the situation in Korea was so grim that Truman was seriously considering removing all U.S. forces from the peninsula. By New Year's 1951, the second wave of the Chinese offensive had pushed the U.N. coalition south of the 38th parallel, forcing them to surrender Seoul for the second time. The first Special Marine Corps basic class graduated around the time the division broke out at Chosen. It was one of the Corps' finest hours, but for us, it was a stark reminder that the war was just getting started. We had to fill out requests for next duty assignments. Most of us would be given orders to Korea, but most made their first choice something other than infantry. Only five lieutenants in my training company requested to lead a rifle platoon and I was one of them. Only five lieutenants in my training company requested to lead a rifle platoon and I was one of them. Think about that for a minute. We're talking about a, a company of officers in the United States Marine Corps. And that right there was an excerpt from a manuscript of a book which is called Make Peace or Die, A Life of Service, Leadership, and Nightmares. The book is written by Charles U. Daly, and it is a distinct honor to actually be sitting here with Mr. Daly today to discuss his book, his incredible life, and the amazing lessons he has from it all. Mr. Daly, welcome to the show. Thank you for coming on. Thank you. We're your own record. <laughs> and you, how long have you been working on this book for? It, in my heart, a long time. The, uh, I wanted to uh, uh, record I'm not even sure why, other than I thought that uh, I'm now very old and uh, I want to leave something behind for uh, my uh, family, my sons who range from 67 to 24, um, and uh, have an idea of what life was like, uh, and, and truthfully set that down. and. Uh, they can read on it, use the toilet paper, whatever they want to do it, but I did not expect to make a commercial venture out of it. I, uh, I felt that would have been trading on uh, the bodies I left behind. Well, the, the uh, truth certainly comes out in this book. It's, a, it's uh, super frank and straightforward, and it's, it's a great read, and I appreciate your son, uh, Charlie, sending it to me and, and linking all this up. Um, <clears throat> Yeah, it's it's good, um, and and it's it, it lays out your life. And I'd like to go back to the book right now and go to the beginning, the beginning of the book and the beginning of your story. It starts off like this: Mine is not your typical Irish immigrant story. For one thing, my dad had use of a private airplane when I was growing up. 
a bulky Ford tri-motor with silver skin and loud engines that scared the hell out of me. The plane and a private rail car were perks of my father's work as a top U.S. executive for Shell Oil. Our family came to America on a boat, but it was an ocean liner and we traveled first class. Definitely not your typical immigrant story, huh? No, I've screwed it up later on, but it was, <laughs> it, it, it was uh, not the sort of person who could be flunk out of Ellis Island. <laughs> yeah. The um, very interesting story on your, on your heritage, and it, going back to the book again, it says in 1892, my father was born in Ningpo, China the son of Dr. Charles Cathrop de Berg Daly. Did I say that right? Pretty close. <laughs> close enough, probably as close as I could do it. Right. <laughs> uh, who set up a clinic in Ningpo several year, following several voyages to China, China as a ship's doctor. It seems he found the human suffering in that ancient kingdom too hard to ignore. And so he stayed and married an Irish nurse with similar ideals. Perhaps my grandfather's response to this cry for help explains something about my own life, my tendency to spring into action when someone is suffering a wrong, even on the other side of the world, even if it's not my fight. This habit of leaping into action when the bugle blows has been a mixed blessing for me, as it well may have been for him. And there was all kinds of turmoil going on in China at the time, and so they actually sent sent your father back to be educated at the Turnbridge School, and then he went on to Cambridge, where he graduated in 1914, and anyone that knows anything about history <laughs> knows that that's not a good year to be graduating from college in, in Britain. Yeah. yeah, a large number of them at age 17 or thereabouts uh, went off to war, and they, at that time, uh, they had little knowledge of war, uh, I, there's a wonderful book, Diary of a Fox Hunting Man, followed by a Diary of an Infantry Officer. And uh, he was a gentleman, and uh, he uh, went to war with uh, his groom for his horse and his horse. And that was before they met machine guns. Yeah, that's, we've, we've covered multiple books first pertinent person accounts on, on this podcast talking about the absolute horror of World War One and and the horror of the machine gun versus versus the tactics that they had at the time. The and it's actually unbelievable when you read the stories about World War One. It's unbelievable that it happened it's unbelievable that it happened for a week never mind a month, never mind years, where you'd say, okay, hey, your battalion just went over the, over the top, no one came back, and in 15 minutes, our battalion's gonna go, and 15 minutes after that, another battalion's gonna go. It's, it, it's, it's crazy to think about that kind of human sacrifice and, and that. Well, the geniuses who did that uh, weren't the ones who uh, went over the top and who walked up and walked ahead, they either fell or got hung up on the barbed wire, and they had no concept. Uh, they had a little bit of experience in the Boer War and a few other souvenir hunts, but they had no concept what they were doing to a generation uh, on both sides of the trenches. Yeah. Um, 
going back to the book, I keep a photo of my father taken during the First World War. In it, my dad stands in his officer uniform with binoculars and a walking stick. Beside him, my mother's 19-year-old brother, Charlie, a lieutenant, leans on his rifle in a confident pose, half smiling behind his pipe. They are flanked by a few others. One is wearing a German army helmet with a spike on top, a war trophy. What war does to men can be detected in the difference between their expressions. My dad has the proverbial thousand-yard stare. The corners of his eyes around his spectacles and his brows show resignation and an exhausted readiness. The men under his command have a similar look. Charlie, on the other hand, has the fresh face of a replacement, a gentleman for whom war is still a great adventure. Charlie has only been on the front for less than a week. He would be blown to pieces shortly after this photo was taken. My dad handed this photo down to me and scribbled the names of the men under it with KIA or WIA beside each name, marking them all killed or wounded. I thought of cropping the photo to make it a family shot, and I'm glad I didn't. Those other guys had already been cropped out. Shortly after my own war, I asked dad, when do the bad memories fade? It will take a long time, he said, but finally they will fade. They don't. No, they don't. And we're going to get to your war in a bit. Your dad's war, staying with the book, dad had gone to the front in the 4th Battalion of the Royal Dublin Fusiliers, having applied for a commission on the day the war broke out. He was named a captain following a perfunctory officer's training course. While his sons went to war, my grandfather managed two hospitals in Ireland that handled the overflow of wounded. In 1917, he was awarded an order of the British Empire for this work. My uncle, Lieutenant Arthur Charles de Berg Daly, another Charlie, was killed in action on the 9th of September, 1916, after having seen action and survived in the Somme. He was 19 years old. In his last letter home, he wrote, We attack Ginchi tomorrow. In case of accidents, I played the game two days ago and will, please God, tomorrow. What does that mean, played the game two days ago? That means he'd already probably seen some combat? Probably went out at least on a patrol or the attack, general attack, highly unlikely would have come back, but the night patrols were regular and... Then they wanted some genius in the back said they wanted to probe the enemy line. Uh, how you probe the enemy line uh, uh, f- cutting our way through barbed wire uh, and they're just waiting. Uh, I don't, that's a tough way to probe them. Yeah, that's... That's the patrols. I was very, later on in my life, uh, patrols were difficult enough uh, without... Uh, people waiting and with a certain knowledge that you're coming and as soon as you start messing around with the barbed wire they know exactly where you are and then they don't waste a whole lot of ammunition but it doesn't take much running through a machine gun to clean out some probes so then they when they didn't come back the the genius figured hey there must be somebody in those trenches it's it's not i can't grasp it how uh, that mentality went and how pompous those fucking generals were 
I'm not Father Generals. The next morning he is said to have led his men over the top and was hit in the ear with a bit of shrapnel. He took cover in a shell, shell crater to assess the wound and regain his composure. According to the official report, he stood up, made it four or five yards toward the enemy wire before being hit in the head with machine gun fire. Due to a cruel administrative error, my family would receive word that he had been wounded. Then they were told that the report was an error and that he was fine. And finally, they learned the truth, or at least a polite version of the truth. So there's two uncles right there, Charlie and Charlie, and they've both been killed. And now we get to your dad. Dad was wounded at Richebourg Laveau. I'm not even gonna. I'm your not even your gonna. French is about as good as mine. <laughs> <laughs> On 9 May 1915, in the left thigh and the right hand. While convalescing in Dublin, he played a role in putting down the 1916 Easter, Easter Rising that I'm glad I don't know too much about. Shortly after his return to the front as a major in June 1916, he was sent home again with appendicitis and spent the rest of the war training bombers in the art of grenade throwing. For his wounds, he was given a lump sum or sum or blood money, as he called it, which he spent on a motorcycle. He put putted around Ireland on the bike for several months, visiting the family families of young officers who had been killed while serving under his command in the Fusiliers. He eased painful memories by describing deaths courageous and quick, even in cases where the truth was pathetic and grotesque. Thus, he uh, he didn't mean to, but he. He promoted the concept that uh, war isn't what it is. I don't think he felt guilty about that. He felt more like uh, trying to explain the unexplainable to the families <clears throat> whom he knew exactly what had happened to their sons. Mm -hmm. And so he lied. I did that once. And... Uh, you can discuss it later on and carry this with, to write a letter of condolence. And that letter returned. It said, you were his officer. I'm just curious to know why uh, you're alive, you lived, and he didn't. I think there was that sort of feeling. Of, you just can't convey the, the truth, but you want to. So you don't. Your your dad's continuing to travel around, and he ends up in one spot in Bandon, where he met the parents and sister of Charles Seeley King, the man beside him in the photo who, like his own brother Charles, had been killed while attempting to lead an Irish platoon across barbed wire in the front on German lines. Lieutenant King's surviving sister, Violet, became my mother. Violet Seeley King impressed my father with her independence. She reacted to her brother's death by leaving County Cork for the first time in her life to volunteer as a VAD. What's a VAD? Volunteer aid, not, I don't know. Something, but, but basically it's nurses going Just close to the not, front lines. Not, she didn't qualify to be a nurse. She just, uh, 
in the ten households in close you can, uh, took care of someone with a gut wound, then you're gone. So you're going to bullshit them and and clean out the guts and see elemental parts of males that she probably never even seen or so it wasn't uh, it was a shock I'm sure to her on the other hand uh, uh, the death of her brother was was a greater shock yeah you, you say in here Violet left behind a life of lunches lawn games picnics <laughs> tennis bridge and ping pong I assumed she'd never seen a nude male let alone one with vital parts missing or maimed Mum never spoke about her service but when it came to my but when it came my turn to go to war she had no illusions about what her son would experience. Later, she told me she had very little hope of seeing me again. So, and I, I always have to make this disclaimer when I read through these books. Uh, I'm obviously skipping giant chunks. I'm not just reading the whole book. Good. And <laughs> you're lucky. No, and, you're not. It's, it's, it's a powerful expression and it's and uh, just reading these parts make me happy to know that some people will know bits and pieces of the truth after the war your dad um ended up getting a job and here we go to the book dad got a job at the offices of the royal dutch shell which is now just shell today where he found row on row of desks filled with other survivors of a decimated generation discussing this gloomy scene with with a bored interviewer he learned there was one unwanted job open peddling shell oil products in rural india he seized at the chance and so he he gets this opportunity to go to india and working for shell oil he was based in a place called Malabar, and then there was this this event that took place called the Mopla Rising. Mopla Rebellion. The Mopla Rebellion. And quick description of it here, Europeans were brutally murdered, and then the Moplas Moplas? How do you Mo- say it? Moplas. The Moplas turned upon their turned upon their Hindu neighbors. They burned villages, sacked temples, outraged women, massacred and attempted a wholesale forcible conversion of Hindus to Islam. Now your dad at the time, although a civilian dad lent assistance to that military force, drawing upon his wartime experience to defend the British and Hindu lives and property from the Islamic rebels by organizing a little convoy of open cars and bicycles to rescue an even smaller group under siege in the village. The local English language, the paper the pioneer describes the battle in its september 19 19th 1921 edition an ex-officer's gallantry and this is talking about your dad after a fierce assault on the part of some hundreds of rebels the troops withdrew lieutenant mcgonial having been wounded to command the next party sent forward captain mcgonroy called upon Mr. Daly, an ex-officer. Mr. Daly went forward with a platoon, carrying out the task in very gallant fashion. The platoon was, I think, four or five <laughs> guys. They, they owned it in, they tried to maintain discipline with minimal force. Yeah, I mean, that's that's like, you couldn't, you couldn't make that up. Here's your dad, former, uh, <laughs> former, former infantry guy, and this re- rebellion happens, and he steps up and 
leads this little team, and they they basically they survived the horrible situation. Yeah, he didn't. They didn't want to die, <sighs> and they had the automatic weapon. Yeah, that makes a big difference. You you got in here. One of the rebels got close enough to swing a handmade sword at my dad. He gave me that. He gave that weapon to me, and I used it as a fire poker and a garden tool until it broke on a stone one day in the 1960s. True. <laughs> Amid all this stuff going on, he actually wrote and proposed to your mom, Violet, and she got on a boat and went down there, and they were married on. Nine. Weeks, weeks, and weeks on an on, 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 on air-conditioned vessel, just uh, through the Red Sea and so on. Oh yeah, you got to point that out because not too many people know what it's like to be at sea these days. Yeah, yeah. I've fortunately or unfortunately done multiple deployments around the world on <laughs> ships, yeah, <I> know. <laughs> and air conditioning even on a modern navy yeah. ship isn't always there. <laughs> right there. Uh, I took my space veil. I took my young family on. Uh, on one and uh, right after the election of 62, and um, I wanted to get away from the weaving spiders and so on, so I found a space, two cabins on a on a troop ship headed to Hamburg from Brooklyn. So I got on there and I thought, and I, just my late wife, I said, this is one hell of a deal, so uh, let's go celebrate. We're just going under the, Burroughs Hunter Bridge might not have been there, but, but uh, she uh, said, you can't get a drink on a troop ship. Oh, Jesus Christ, sir. <laughs> 14 days later, I get to Hamburg. Boy, I was really thirsty, but it was free, but anyway. Uh, your, uh, your dad, he, because he had, he had behaved in, and performed in that manner, he kind of got some recognition for that and ended up getting getting taken care of and then it was going back to the book thanks to dad's well-known heroics in the uprising and an earthquake in japan that killed a number of shell executives he soon found himself fast-tracked to the highest levels of the company first cleaning up the mess in japan and then on to a senior position in america that included a private plane and a rail car that's crazy a private plane and a rail car that's like and you remember that I remember the plane, geez, it was noisy and it was very, very, it's a tin airplane with big three engines, one end up in the nose and then the other. And uh, I don't remember the rail car other than, uh, I guess I assumed that's the way people travel. That's how an idiot I was. <laughs> so you're now in, uh, you guys are in St. Louis. And. When you were saying until the war in 1939, you guys used to go back and forth to Ireland. Correct. And you were, you, this is how you describe yourself. I was a brat with a run of first class and my own private steward. <laughs> I, do, I, do, I do remember that. <laughs> I can't imagine. Uh, so how old were you when that was going on? I was born in 27 and that was 36 or 36, up until the war started. The war, we call yeah. it, until, until 39. Yeah. And then no more. Yeah, that's, um, I can't imagine, you know, I, I have four kids, three daughters and one son. And and just how crazy they are. I can't imagine putting them in charge of any adult when they're seven years old would just be absolutely crazy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and this is interesting. For reasons unknown to me, the good times at Shell ended in the 1930s. So we left St. Louis for a modest life 
since golden parachutes were not known in those days. So something happened. You don't even really know what happened. Yeah, well, the depression happened. Oh, okay. And then beyond, well, beyond that, though, it was, uh, uh, I'm, I'm not sure. I don't know. But, no, but you went from living this kind of uh, first-class lifestyle to just being a normal, the normal lifestyle. Well, to a substantial extent, he became, uh, he was an adventuresome guy, and he, he uh, started, a, became a, well, a wildcat for oil in Michigan. There ain't no oil in Michigan. <laughs> but uh, so he started a water suffering company and, and uh, peddled that and so on. And then... Uh, when the war came out, he wanted to go back to war, and he was, by that time, was uh, a little too old for that sort of thing. So they, he got a job with the British in the U.S. in an uh, embassy there uh, in, the US, in uh, Washington and in charge of Lend-Lease, which is a, a con job that uh, FDR created because he wanted to get in the war. He believed firmly he had to stop Hitler and so on. And he, uh, so the Lend-Lease part was... Uh, uh, some imaginary leases on some property in Bahamas or somewhere. He gave them, uh, he gave the English, uh, I think, 50 rusty old destroyers, but they were vital in fighting the uh, U-boats in the North Atlantic. So he felt he was doing something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because he actually, as soon as the war kicked off in Europe, he tried yeah. to join the British Army. Yes. And they wouldn't take him. It's the same in those days, the British Army or Irish regiments or whatever you have, the Irish, unfortunately, were paramount in the in, in warfare for the English. And you guys were living in Bethesda at this time or around yes. the D.C., Maryland area? Yeah, just on the edge of it. So now you say this, I will never forget one drive into Washington on a particularly balmy winter Sunday. <laughs> As we were cruising down Constitution Avenue in our old Ford, my father pointed out all the civil servants rushing into the Navy Department building. And he says, look at the way the Americans work, even on a Sunday. When we got back home, we turned on the radio and we learned, out, learned what all the commotion was about. It was Sunday, December 7th, 1941. The Japanese had just bombed Pearl Harbor. And now you know we're in the war. You got your dad, um, at this point, he goes to a doctor. He goes to the doctor because he's getting dizzy and you know, having some spells of dizziness and whatnot. So you say, listening outside a half-open door. At the well, I had a hell of a deal. It was in, uh, he decided to go to a doctor in Johns Hopkins, is a good hospital in Baltimore. And uh, so he asked me if he wanted to go for a drive. And, and I really worshipped him. He said everything was big and all that stuff. So uh, then we went to the hospital, and, and I listened uh, to this conversation uh, between the, uh, the doctor and my dad. I could hear it here through the half-open door. And uh, I could hear him say something to my dad about, uh, uh, you won't have any more, you got a problem, we don't know much about it, but it's multiple sclerosis. Or, I'm not sure he remember the name, or I didn't remember it. And uh, he wouldn't be doing any much more golf or, or uh, having trouble walking, increasing trouble walking, unless you, uh, Cut out the uh, alcohol and and uh, in the sense of he used to have evening cocktails with my, my mother and uh, the other other limitations he had to live then on and uh, so I remember my dad's words say, uh, "Would you like me to live in a vacuum tube?" <laughs> Goodbye, doctor. 
and I came out and said, Dad, he just said to me, let's go home. Yeah, well, you, you say it here, he says, let's get home in time for me to have a martini with mom. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so he let the doctor know that his, yeah, what the doctor right. was saying, no alcohol, no smoking, no more golf and no all this nothing, stuff. Yeah. And he said, okay, guess what? We're going to go have a martini with mom. <laughs> uh, now, in the spring of 1945, you joined the Navy. And, and you said, for my parents, this is probably confirmation of our fall from gentility. Their only son was going to war as an enlisted guy. So, uh, the war's still going on when you joined, 1945? Yes, but they, uh, they heard the Japs gave up, not necessarily because of me. The Navy had already given them up on me. But. <laughs> so you go to boot camp. You go to... Uh, Firefighting school, um, you, you got this part in here, which I have to read. It says, to get out of compulsory Sunday church services, I said I was Jewish. <laughs> For this, no, I was I just said I was a Jew. <laughs> For this, I was assigned punitive cleaning duties. Whether this was because of anti-Semitism in the Navy or because the Navy doesn't like liars or both, I will never know. <laughs> So um, I got to sleep in. Yeah, <laughs> and then you you had a you all. It's, it also says all recruits were compelled to box. My sparring partner was a brute who had had fun beating the living crap out of me. I was saved by Ira Cohn, a genuine Jew who offered to switch sparring partners with me and proceeded to savagely beat the guy who'd been doing a job on me. And then you get this break, which is my big break was the V-5 program, which had been set up to train naval aviators. This included a full ride at university and commission as an officer because only gentlemen could fly for the Navy. So they have this program out there to become a pilot, and you actually... It's unbelievable that he felt... It went advertised throughout the fleet by order, and those who got through it were sent to... Uh, get a degree. You had to learn to get a degree before you can fly an airplane to to America, for America. And you 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 end up getting selected for the program. And and this is this is classic. So here we go. I was college bound, but I didn't know which college, nor did I care. Those of us who had passed the test were assembled from our various East Coast stations at muster. Roll was called. Daly, Davis, Loftus, and Monroe. I can remember very well. I don't have to read it. <laughs> Daly, Davis, Loftus, and Monroe to New Haven, Connecticut, going to Yale University. We didn't know we were going to New Haven, but anyway. And then, and then the others with the last name, last names N through Z were sent to Schenectady, New York, and to Union College. Right. So by, by, by your alphabetical order, you get sent to Yale. A brilliant man. <laughs> That's called Planned Parenthood. Planned Parenthood, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> and then you get to Yale, and it was pretty challenging. And you, you talk about that. Um, we had to wear uniforms at all times and, and guard college gates with empty rifles. But just it's clear that we weren't uh, the normal quality of, of Yale men who wore white shoes and ties and and uh, so on. And uh, I remember the high school girls at uh, Navy High School used to go by and make a stand there, not at attention, but the best could. While, you know, you, the war had ended, and then 
you, you say after my freshman year at Yale, the aviation cadet program was dissolved. I could stay on at Yale, but I had to sign a seven-year enlistment. No way. I wouldn't sign. So I was sent to Norfolk, still a seaman second class, to guard a gangplank. Fortunately, I've seen it in my career. <laughs> Fortunately, the peacetime Navy didn't need me for long. I received an honorable discharge on August 21st, 1946. To my stunned delight, I found that I still had that I still had some more American generosity coming my way. Thanks to the GI Bill, I was entitled to a year for having enlisted and one day of college for every day I had served, including my time in uniform at Yale. This was just enough time to compete, complete my studies and earn a college degree. To top off this bonanza of good fortune, Yale welcomed me back in September as a regular student in regular clothes, free to study whatever I wanted. I chose international relations. So there you go. That's a cla- that's classic. No airplanes. You can't make that up. Well, I would have if, I could, if it was necessary. I didn't have to. Um, the summer of 1947, I took a road trip. My elder sister, at my elder sister Joan's suggestion, I dropped in on her in-laws in Chicago. They took me to Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, for a weekend at their cottage. We went to the Belfry Summer Playhouse. Belfry, right. Belfry Summer Playhouse to see another part of the forest, name of the play. I was stunned by one of the performances and stayed, by one of the performers and stayed at the lake for three days, trying without success to bed the star by the name of Mary Larmouth. Larmouth. So you, you, you see this girl and then you go back to Yale. You say I was bored despite good friends and touch football games and you couldn't get Mary out of your mind. Mary ended up moving to New York and you'd go visit her from New Haven. And then here we go. At some point I got to thinking that all this was one hell of a deal for an immigrant. I couldn't get over the idea that I owed my country everything and I was possessed by restless and romantic feeling that I ought to pay my country back through further service. What a dope. <laughs> I heard of my, I heard of a Marine Corps program which would make me a commissioned officer if I spent the summer between my junior and senior years getting paid to train in a platoon leaders class in Quantico, Virginia. My sister Joan's husband John had been a World War II Marine in the Pacific. He was like an older brother to me and I had a lot of respect for the Marines in general because of the qualities I saw in John that were almost non-existent among my classmates. Marines know what I'm talking about. That is the few, the proud stuff that has led many good men to early deaths and others to disillusionment and boredom in a branch of service affectionately nicknamed the suck. A brotherhood in any case. And then after a six week summer camp, you were a Marine officer. I was commissioned a second lieutenant in the peacetime Marine Corps. Dad didn't have much to say about my commission because he didn't have a crystal ball. As a Marine reservist, my standby orders read something like, only to be called upon in case of national emergency. So you become a Marine. Instead of attending graduation, Mary and I got married. On a Saturday, and both went to work on Monday, Mary worked at a department store and I got a job unloading millions of gallons of industrial molasses from deep water tankers at a pier in Baltimore for a British company. Mary and I were earning enough to buy a little Ford, and rent a little house on the bay with a pump well for drinking water and an oil heater. Eventually the oil leaked into the well, which was okay because it floated as long as the water level didn't get too low. When it did, we started getting greasy showers. We were so unbelievably happy. So you kind of scrounged together a nice little life at this point. Very good. 
Very good. I was just, uh, I felt good. The, uh, I don't know if you get in there that the job was like, but but uh, it was a, uh, it was running a, a one-man, a two-man terminal in the, the industrial glasses collected from around the country and then collected there and then pumped onto, onto ships. And there were just two of us. And uh, so uh, the other guy had retired, head guy, and it left one my one-man staff. So I went, saw the one-man staff, big, fat, black guy. And uh, we worked a lot. He's smarter than I was about this business by far. He would have been, except he's got the skin problem. So uh, he had worked for some years. And then he used to... Uh, uh, we got along fine. I noticed after the first week or so, I noticed he took a break once or twice a day, and, and I didn't give a damn what he did, but it was, was an easy job, and unloading railroad cars, one thing or another, but he just disappeared. So I don't said to him, uh, Nelson, none of my business, I don't care what you do, uh, but uh, I'm kind of, I'm just curious. He said, I have to, I have to go to the toilet. And it was a big combination of a big industrial pump, and off on the side was a toilet. I said, Christian Nelson, we got a toilet here. He said, that's for white folks. I said, you'd be shitting me. He said, no. He said, I said that's been that way all the years that you've been here? Yeah. I said, well, that's just plain bullshit. Just forget that, okay? And uh, so um, he said, all right. But I noticed when tank trucks came in to load, to unload the molasses and so on, that he was never, never near that toilet. This, this is Baltimore, Maryland, 1949, 1949. It's ridiculous. It was ridiculous. It is ridiculous now with some of the things we do, but that, that really bit. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're living that life. You're, like I said, you're pretty pretty happy at that point yeah. and then um, going to the book on June 25th 1950 we got our national emergency <laughs> at dawn that morning the Korean People's Army surged over the 38th parallel into the south this action was immediately condemned by an emergency session of the UN Security Council a vote from which the Soviets abstained on June 30th five days after the North's invasion of the south began, Truman sent American troops to support the South Koreans. On July 7th, the UN passed Resolution 84 requesting member nations to join a police action on the Korean Peninsula. 16 nations joined in, including ones with modest armies like Ethiopia and Turkey. General MacArthur, who had been serving as the de facto emperor of Japan since the war's end, was given command of UN forces. Unfortunately for South Koreans, MacArthur's army of occupation were not the same men who won the Second World War. Many were drunk and fat from half a decade of soft living as occupiers. They were beaten back almost off the peninsula by Kim Il-sung's peasant fighters making their last stand outside the port of Pusan. The outcome looked bleak. On on the 15th of September, MacArthur executed an act of military genius when he ordered the Marines under his command to make an amphibious landing at the port of Incheon near Seoul. Mary and I knew little of Korean history. Neither of us knew or cared about America's blundered diplomacy and intelligence failures that had left Korea in a national security blind spot. 
But Mary's attention skyrocketed when I reminded her of my standby orders and speculated that this skirmish seemed to qualify as a national emergency. My call to duty came shortly after Truman decided to commit troops to the UN's response to North Korea's assault. I went down to our local post office where a Navy corpsman was giving the Marine physicals. I've always had low blood pressure. When the doc double checked it, he wanted to turn me away. I had already taken leave from guarding millions of gallons of molasses and had gotten excited about going to war. I told him I'd rewrite back, went and ran up and down a few flights of stairs and returned to somewhat breathless for a re-exam. The corpsman said something to the effect of, hey pal, if you're dumb enough to go, I'm dumb enough to send you. True. Up until that point, my military training consisted of PLC, which is the platoon leaders course, that summer camp at Quantico in 1948. Before deploying to Korea, I would receive Excuse additional me, the training. the PLC, platoon letters class, the uh, rest of the Marine Corps could see the, the little bars, the silver bars, and mistake them for a captain. And sometimes they'd salute, they'd salute us. That really bit. So they said, uh, the platoon leaders class, PLC, Prick's Last Chance. <laughs> and that stuck with us. The Prick's Last Chance graduated. <laughs> uh, before deploying to Korea, I would receive additional training in the first ever class of the Special Basic School. Now, today it's just called the Basic School. Is it, is we were, it Special we were, Basic School because it was shortened for Korea? We were the first one, and it was, it was a creation. I think it had a much more extensive process prior to this souvenir hunt, and so that they, but I won't say that anyway, a meat grinder, but it was fast, mm-hmm. and it was created. At, and as for special basic uh, today, the basic basic class goes to well, a basic class would say six months yeah. and another year or whatever before your commission. But they needed uh, lieutenants; they need them right now. Back to the book, we had just eleven weeks at the basic school. Obviously, we came away woefully underprepared for what lay ahead. On chilly autumn nights, when training didn't have me fumbling around that land navigation courses in the dark woods. I would sit by the fire or lie in bed with Mary and talk dreams about the arrival of our baby. Unspoken was the consolation that I was leaving her with child in the event that my absence became permanent. Those weeks at the basic school were consumed by seasoned Marines vainly trying to teach 2nd Lieutenant Daly to read maps and lead riflemen. Not that I was going to need any of the skills I was learning. It looked as though the war would be over before we got our platoons. Then on Thanksgiving 1950, the Chinese launched their surprise attack at Chosen, and our brother Marines found themselves doomed. And that's where I started this whole podcast off, but then you get my orders were to report to Camp Pendleton near San Diego, California before shipping out across the Pacific. I said goodbye to my parents in Bethesda. My dad gave me a 45 caliber Smith & Wesson revolver, recalling that he had found it a personal weapon recalling that he had found a personal weapon to be of comfort. Years later, my son Charlie was reading Tim O'Brien's Vietnam stories, The Things They Carried. He asked me if there was anything I carried in the war for good luck. I told him, yeah, a pistol. I still keep that pistol on my desk, unloaded. Dad kissed me goodbye and hugged me. I can't recall him doing that, doing either ever before. The family's war history must have been on his mind as it was on mine. All through my deployment, my mother would garden nervously and dig holes in the yard like graves. I leave out the light graves. I don't know what the motive was, but she just kept digging. I don't, I, 
Maybe that's what was in her mind. I don't know. Mm. But she did do a lot of digging. I'm sure she was trying to keep her brain occupied. It could be. Mary and I planned to drive west in our 1949 Ford, but Mary was having trouble riding while pregnant, so she followed by train. After moving what would have been a dream house in any other circumstance, just off the beach in Carlsbad, Angus and I, it's one of your buddies, Angus and I drove north to Camp Pendleton to check in. I explained to the weathered sergeant on duty that we had just arrived and gave the young wives a bit and asked for an added week's leave. And then he tells you, the boat leaves Diego on Wednesday. Angus and I decided to break news separately and gently to our beauties. The moment I walked in the door, Mary looked at my face and started to cry. Angus's bride heard the news through the bathroom door, seated on the toilet. She screamed. So you, you think you're going to get, yeah, can we get an extra week's leave? And they're like, no, the boat yeah. leaves on Wednesday. Yeah, right. We'd rented the nice little house, too. <laughs> Man. At muster on Monday, I was given responsible for responsibility for 30 or so Marines in the fifth replacement draft. The draft's mission was to bring the depleted Marine forces on the Korean Peninsula back up to strength for a counteroffensive. As I inspected their weapons and gear, the platoon sergeant advised me that many of these boys were virgins and suggested we rectify that before heading out. That night, we crossed into the U we crossed the U.S.-Mexico border and found a brothel called El Sarape where I negotiated a group rate using my best college Spanish a and, some discount. <laughs> and some gestures to explain to the ladies it wouldn't take these lads long. <laughs> Not only was I the officer in charge of these guys, at, but at 23 I was older than, most, than almost all of them. This was not lost on our host who called the Marines Ninos, boys. On our way out, the ladies gathered to bid us farewell, offering streamers and feigned tears. Years later, I was at a hotel bar in Veracruz, Mexico. I kept getting looks from one of the barmen. Finally, he shouted out, El Serape. <laughs> the opposite side of Mexico. I've been Veracruz, an elegant hotel on, on, uh, on the harbor, rebuilding a shipping port. And uh, my wife was with me in this hotel. And, and uh, then the, the long bar, and uh, I, I still I can't remember what a lot of things people look like and so on. but. But I had, and I had been uh, in Mexico and not down there. So the guy is mixing a drink or whatever the bartenders do, and he just slammed uh, Bill Sarape! <laughs> <laughs> He'd been in, in the other establishment. And, and uh, Mary said, what's that about? I don't know what the hell he's talking about. <laughs> anyway. Of course you know nothing about that. Mm. Uh, Dockside, Wednesday morning, I bought $10,000 worth of short-term life insurance from an enterprising Aetna life salesman, supplementing the government's policy of the same amount. I would be taking over a platoon where most, if not all, of my predecessors had been killed or wounded. If I thought about it, I was fucked, but I didn't think about it. So now you get on a ship. We made a stop in Yosuka, J Yokosuka? Yeah. Yokosuka, Japan, for two days picking up supplies and ammunition. We had a chance to call home. There was a long line to use phones. It was crowded, and I couldn't hear well. In a room full of Marines, I shouted into the receiver to Mary, you bet your sweet ass I love you. The Marines off the ship had managed to get drunk and in trouble before the rest of us could even get before down she the met, Before she met me, she was a, a daughter of a Canadian minister. So, uh, <laughs> it was kind of a slow learning process for for both of us. <laughs> uh, 
So the, the first Marines off the ship managed to get drunk and in trouble before the rest of us could even get down the gangplank. We were ordered to remain on the base, officers included. Eager to experience the finer points of Japanese culture, I assembled a squad of like-minded Marines, lined them up in formation, and marched them to the main gate, sternly bringing the ranks to a halt. I advised the sentry that we were under orders to move into town and round up our misbehaving comrades. Outside the gate, I told the men to scatter, have fun, fuck their brains out, drink themselves stupid, but don't get arrested and do not miss the ship. I was showered with words of gratitude and promises to return on time. <laughs> I did. Uh, Pete McCloskey, and this is the first first uh, introduction of Pete McCloskey. Am I saying that name right? That's right. Pete McCloskey and I met on the troop ship and had made, and made it sh- and had made it ashore earlier. I found him in a geisha house infested with officers based in Japan. At one point, a Navy officer came from Just another. Just correcting he, he had made it. He had made it earlier. Oh, so he was already Marston, there, and right. then you showed up. Yeah. At one point, a Navy officer came from another room and pompously ordered us to quiet down. This is a geisha house. Oh. <laughs> when he returned to his party. They're paper th- walls. Yeah. I threw an empty bottle through the paper screen wall, apparently striking someone. We heard a yell, then sirens. Pete and I clambered through the skylight and spent the night bivouacked on the roof. <laughs> two gentlemen, two officers of the United States Marines. <laughs> the finer points of Japan. In the morning, everyone made it back to the ship somehow. However, just before departure, six officers were ordered to stay in Japan. One was the future evangelist and presidential candidate, Pat Robertson. Pat got his daddy, then United States Senator Willie or A. Willie Robertson, to have him pulled off the ship because Pat was probably having second thoughts about dying for his country. The other five lieutenants were beards pulled to cover for, Bat, for Pat's preferential treatment. Disgusting. Yeah, and we, I don't go too, into it too much, but that comes back to, uh, yeah. to, to bite him. Well, it, did, it did come back to bite him. Later on in the book, we yeah. discussed the virtuous guy, now a wonderful preacher, presidential candidate and so on. Just how uh, this virtuous guy who said he was a combat marine, which he wasn't, just how he got gonorrhea. But it was some miracle. They're called an unspecified drip. So. Is that something like the Immaculate Conception? Did get gonorrhea mm. without any contact? I don't know what the first case, but Robinson's it was. He was truly I mean, any faint idea that that uh, had entered his head that that uh, he, he had some duty to those Marines and so on just escaped him. Mm. He, as I say in the book, uh, we called him out for exactly what he was and when he was running for president, and he uh, sued McCloskey and. Uh, said, I'll break you, and we have, uh, what do you call those things when they have testimony or whatever, court reports, of course the suit, in every state, and we'll break you. And uh, so it goes on quite a bit in the book about about that and, and the depth of the rot uh, inside that guy. Mm-hmm. Well, you guys proceed, you land at Pohang, a port on the east coast of Korea. From Pohang, we were driven up into the hills in the back of trucks. The road was rough. The benches hard and cold. Nobody spoke. I thought about Mary and felt alone. 
it could be that this was the most frightening, one of my most frightening memories of the war because the men to my left and my right were still strangers and we had not yet encountered the action that would bond us and give us the courage to get through much darker nights. At one piss stop, we heard that we had already lost some guys from another convoy, not slain in some glorious fight, but squashed by their vehicle when it skidded off the rutted road and rolled down the steep hillside. We reached 1st Division, 1st Division's 5th Marine Regiment at the front. Not a lot of trenches, just some high hills, narrow valleys, and a small river with enemy lurking in the long night. Pete McCloskey and I were assigned to Charlie Company 1st Battalion. The motto of 1st Battalion, 5th Marines, is make peace or die. For those of us who had just arrived in Korea, the latter seemed much more unlike, the, the latter seemed much more likely. It was February 16th, 1951. Before the Corps could give me a rifle platoon to command, I was designated the battalion supply officer. A lieutenant would have to be killed, wounded, or least likely of all, rotated home before I got to a platoon. Um, and so you're you're working as a supply officer for a while, and you you go through some stories. You're you're um, a little bit brash, I would say, and a little bit rebellious. You know, there's some some of the uh, chiggy bears who are these these Koreans that work f- basically hauling gear, and and you befriended some of them. Well, and- I, became, I I was their commanding officer because uh, they uh, the supply officer had fifty. Chiggy bears, and uh, they were uh, they carry supplies up and they help carry wounded uh, down. And they were they were uh, because they're small. Uh, they were ill-fed because they weren't given the rations they were promised. They uh, had homemade shoes in many cases. Um, they were very brave and and. Uh, I felt, I won't say responsible for them, I suppose I felt that, but I felt we could have these people who can kill for us. And, uh, you know, they just, uh, they say they, they pay them in want. You pay them by the barrel because they, the money was totally worthless. So uh, you could, uh, I mean, our rations in those days used to include it when they're brought to us or, or they're carried up or whatever. In, in a ration, you get, say, three Lucky Strike cigarettes, something like that. I, I don't know happen to smoke. Jeez, I thought they were in heaven. Uh, and, but they weren't. Uh, and I got the corpsman to look at them, and, and they had very, uh, uh, not pragmatic, but Machiavellian to keep in good condition. We're going to carry the bodies, so uh, might as well help my feet. And I felt very close to them, and I, and I used to, uh, I can do it now, my knees aren't so I can squat for an hour or two easily, just as they do, and just uh, uh, find out what the Coleman are doing. I, most of the time, I didn't have an interpreter, but I felt more and more close. And then the fucking colonel said, uh, you can't just squat down with a bunch of gooks. And uh, he, he, he was not my favorite guy, and, and I just ignored that. And I felt that they, they were, they were uh, uh, part of me, but certainly they were part of the Charlie Company 1st Battalion, 5th Marines when I got there, or the whole battalion. And uh, so uh, they didn't wear helmets, so I didn't wear helmets. So then uh, another officer came from regiment, 
and he pricked Major, he lisped. And he said, I think I don't know if I had in there or not. He said, Mr. Day, will you don't stop? Where is out wearing your helmet? I'm going to transfer you out of the battalion. Oh shit! You're going to send me home. Aren't you fucking terrified me? So, uh, but anyway, it was it was a it was a, that job exposed a lot of disgust to the performance of of the battalion commander who uh, did not eat last. Uh, the uh, lack of effort in trying to get decent supplies. Um, I, got, I got a trailer and a jeep and went and stole something from the army, but it's not stealing something. They're sitting in the fat asses. These are reserve places, not below the army, but anyway. So it was okay, but it wasn't, it wasn't what I wanted to do. And then I had a chance to, uh, to uh, in, a, in a volleyball game. The a colonel, volleyball game? The colonel organized the the, uh, the uh, headquarters group with the uh, platoon leaders in McCloskey had been platoon leader by then, so uh, he put me on the side of the, of the line officers. And uh, so uh, I thought, and, and this colonel was much worse, I don't know, I was in there, much worse than you could imagine if I was calling on down fire to protect the headquarters rather than worry about who's on the ridge who happened to be uh, Marines. So I just, uh, we played volleyball and, and I, in theory, missed the ball and I hit him as hard as I could right in his face through the, through the net. And uh, so then pretty soon I got a platoon. Like I said, you were brash. <laughs> And well, that was, that was, if there was a duty call, that was, I really, I really, really wanted to hurt him, because I really thought it was mm -hmm. desperately important that he uh, get out of there. Um, you, and, and, well, you, you say in here, my misbehavior and contempt for pointless rules and petty authority, petty authority figures was indicative of an age-old fact of war. Quote, good soldiers who excel at shirt starching and personal grooming are seldom the guys you want in combat. Marines have a slur for these scrubbed, disciplined rear echelon types. We call them pogues, persons other than grump, grunts. One early morning, I saw this distinction boil over and nearly turn deadly. Four of my chiggies, including the widower, were carrying a gut shot North Korean who had been hit during a minor skirmish the night before and had been found aimlessly crawling on the hill. The bearers set the stretcher down beside the road, waiting for someone to collect the prisoner for interrogation if he didn't die first. A clean-shaven truck driver, who just finished hauling supplies up from the rear and noticed that the wounded man had used what little strength he had left to struggle onto his side to take a piss. The truck driver waited for the trickle to start, then put a toe of his boot on the guy's shoulder to make him roll back and piss on himself. He laughed as the urine went all over the wounded man and seeped into his gut wound. Behind me, I heard the unmistakable sound of a rifle being racked. A Marine, possibly on the edge of reason from his last hill, aimed his weapon at the sadistic driver. No, I shouted. I shared the rifleman's disgust, but I couldn't let him throw his life away by committing murder. I just thought about one of the, one of the uh, cheeky bears you, you touched on there. Um, you touched about a... Uh, the widower? 
Yeah, so he had um, he had come to me and with an, through an interpreter and uh, said he wanted to get a pass to go back to uh, see the death and his family. So, uh, and I happened to have noticed him before because he was a little older than some and carrying a full loads and so on. And uh, so um, I said, Boy, that's, in, a, in a group that size, there have to be line crossers who are just watching what we were doing and so on. So nobody, once they came to us, the only way they die is if they're dead. I mean, to get out is if they're dead. At least in time, you don't, nobody goes anywhere else, no matter what. Wait, these are the cheeky bears? No yeah. one goes anywhere else? Well, they can't. There's been X number of them, say one, play none, play two, were, uh, were North, were, were, were spying on us really, um, or so we're told, and probably rightly. So uh, I gave him the, uh, I think I wrote it, the book, I paraphrased it anyway, I said that he's been good and so on, he's, he's going between where we are now and Wanju, and uh, then if, uh, if he's presented this after, uh, I gave him a week or whatever it was after such, such a date, or out of direct line between the two, kill him. Yep. And I signed it with labor officer, Charlie Company, 1st Battalion, 5th Marines, and uh, sent him on his way. Yeah, here's the note that you wrote. So this guy wants to go and leave, and you send him with this note. This man is a stretcher bearer for Charlie Company, 1st Battalion, 5th Marines. He has saved Marine lives. He is returning to Wanju on emergency leave. If he is found anywhere off the line between Inji and Wanju, or if he presents this pass after the date on the reverse side, kill him. Signed, 2nd Lieutenant Charles U. Daly, CO, Korean Labor Battalion, 5th Marines. Now, how did you translate this to him so that he knew that he had this, so that he understood what that meant? Well, I didn't. I just gave him the pass, and he hadn't wanted to be worrying about it, but... It, but I didn't want to. Yeah. I, I, I was responsible for doing it. I didn't yeah. want some Marines to get killed because, and whatever. So uh, he, uh, well, fortunately, we didn't change our position around Inji because he, uh, he had no place to go then. But that's, uh, but he showed up. Mm. So I felt good about it. And if I hadn't, if I hadn't felt good about it, I guess I would have felt good about it because someone killed the prick because he was in yeah. fact a line crosser. Mm. But I don't think he was. Going back to the book, in mid-March I was up for promotion. That meant I had orders to report to the rear for a physical fitness test. I was excited for my first shower in a month, but mostly I wanted to know how 2nd Lieutenant Kerry Cowart was doing. Am I saying that right, Cowart? Yes, C-O-W-A-R-T. Yep. About a week earlier, trying to do the right thing, leading from the front, he had run ahead of his mortar section to observe where their rounds were landing. He was spotted by an enemy patrol and was sprayed with bullets from a burp gun a toy-sized submachine gun so named for spitting out bullets so fast they slur together in a bur- into a burping sound. Considering how badly he was hit, I couldn't understand why our doctors would keep him in a tent hospital instead of sending him rearward to more sophisticated facilities. As soon as I reached headquarters, I asked about him and orderly checked a list. Lieutenant Coward died last night. Fuck. Coward was dead. And I got to take a shower. I felt sick. Continuing on, I I got under the hot, hot shower. Another naked guy, an older, wizened little fellow, 
entered and began his shower. He must have noticed my grimy gear. It's quiet up there these days, he said. I tensed up, muttering something like, is that right? All I could think about was coward. I added that it was so nice to be back here in the rear with all the deep thinking, big picture geniuses. Unperturbed, he gave me his forecast. Gooks will be pouring down any, any night now. About then, a man came in whom I recognized as Colonel Seeley, a regiment biggie who had visited the battalion and whose name I remembered as it was the same as my mother's maiden name. He nodded to the man I had just mouthed off to and said, hello, sir, in honest reverence for the man, as much the rank even in a state of undress. I realized the runt was none other than General Chesty, was none other than General Lewis B. Chesty Puller, recipient of more real medals than a dozen other generals, a veteran of World War I, the Banana Wars, and World War II, hero of Guadalcanal and the Chosen Reservoir. I left that tent so fast I, still, I was still lathered up with soap while scrambling into my new uniform. I grabbed my weapons and made myself scarce. After passing my physical, I returned to the battalion, a first lieutenant. And there you go. You, ran, you had a little had a little conversation with Chesty Puller in the shower. Later on, he came by to inspect uh, the lines. He uh, that kind of a general. He made some comment about, "Christ, he's not going to recognize me." And he just said, "Put a good line or something like that." And I knew he had me by the balls, but I needed to squeeze. But the uh, what he referred to there, and I, I might be for a minute to discuss um, that he was right about that assault. He was wrong about the magnitude of it, and unbeknownst to uh, marine intelligence or or these useless generals, Almond and MacArthur and so on, um, because they're gone by then, but no one neither. But anyway, it was a massive, massive uh, accumulation of, of forces, which about 700,000 or thereabouts, far more than before, and they moved at night, and they, um, had, this is the whole, I don't think, I, I can tell you what we got, some, and it assembled that force, and they had later on and quite recently, and even the Marine Corps histories didn't have it, uh, there's a professor of Korean, North America, American speaking, American, Korean uh, professor in Virginia, who had somehow got hold of the uh, post, the war is still on, but the post battle thing, with quite recently got hold of them, and they were the conversations between um, Mao and his generals, and he had decided that the only way to, to stop this or bring a stalemate about or whatever uh, was to have a massive, massive attack. And so he accumulated these troops, so the problem was, and he knew it, that uh, they needed some additional training. They were, they were taken from China and so on, and they were exhausted, and, and uh, semi-trained, uh, but uh, it could be done. And they're, they're, they, had, they had not accumulated enough, could not carry enough. They had to carry it because of the U.S. Air, uh, carry much of the equipment, so they, were, they had very small amounts of the ammunition, like 20 rounds per pan or something like that, but a lot of them, and uh, they had a limited amount of food. So they had a, they had, from the time they launched that, to the time they'd be out of ammunition food was seven days. So, and this is, the Chinese knew that, and they said if we, if we did it with enough force and we'd swamp the UN, at least we'd get a stalemate and end this thing. And uh, so, uh, 
that was unbeknownst to the uh, U.S. But the uh, but the generals also said they were so afraid of of another uh, amphibious landing that uh, they they sped their t t their uh, attack up from uh, should have been late May to uh, the end of April, and uh, so. Uh, and I knew obviously none of that, and second kind of first kind of running around loose, but it just later on I was intrigued by that and by the ferocity of this, and you know as usual we did our little circle around ourselves, and defended ourselves, and, and the second army division disappeared, and the, and the Republican army, our OK division on the other side had disappeared, so there we were. That would sound serious, but not impossible, but the. Uh, so that was a background thing. I think that, that we've, we did stick that in the manuscript belatedly. But anyway, that's just back for your own information. And the casualties were far higher than the uh, Marine casualties than they were at the Chosen uh, by the time we finished wading through this mess. Hmm. But anyway, that's that. And that's go on with that. I'm sorry to interrupt that. No, that's, that's, that's all, that's an, all it's good. It's, it's always interesting to hear the, the enemies the enemy's thoughts and you know that one of the quotes that you've got in here is their 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 strategy was to divide in circle and annihilate that's right. what they were trying to do that's what I'll see, right? and you know that's anyway obviously sorry. very aggressive now i gotta sit down and relax i should i gotta listen instead of talking <laughs> i would rather you talk and i'll listen how's that sound no, not good <laughs> Uh, once the Chinese had routed our allies and surrounded us, they planned to get so close to us that we'd be unable to call for air support or artillery without hitting our own men, thus negating our biggest technological advantage. And that's something that, uh, you know, if you're going against a force that has air control and artillery, you get as close as you can. We, we call it hugging, hugging the enemy. You, or, yeah. you know, you, you, they want to get so close to us that we can't call for fire. That's well put. Sometimes our pilots would drop ordnance by friendlies, on friendlies by accident with terrifying and horrible results. To lessen the chance of this, the Marines would put one of their pilots on the ground with each Marine Infantry Battalion. <laughs> we called our guy, we always called our guys Ace. <laughs> They're very unhappy. And the Marine Corps still does that. That's good. We, we, have, we had Marine Corps pilot with us on the Battle of Ramadi, you know, and, and he's running a little team of Marines and I'm that's what they did. I'm glad to hear yeah, that. It's, 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 a, it's outstanding that they do that. If I would have known, I would have called him Ace, but I didn't know that. I didn't, if I would have known that you guys always called him Ace, we would have called uh, Good Deal Dave Burke. I would have called him Ace. Pilots must have hated it when it was their turn, but we like to know that, that at least they had personal stake in not firebombing Marines. Pilots could strafe the hill with wing-mounted machine guns and bless the men they hit with a quick death, but their most effective weapon was napalm, the famous jellied gasoline designed in a lab at Harvard University in 1942 that sticks to human skin and burns up to 2,200 degrees Fahrenheit. Napalm kills by burning as well as hypothermia and asphyxiation as it sucks up all the breathable air around its flames. This makes it particularly effective against caves, foxholes, and bunkers. Anyone who, hasn't, anyone who isn't barbecued dies from lack of oxygen. It flows downhill into trenches and holes so there's nowhere to take cover. I don't have words to describe the screams and the stench except to say that I've never heard or smelled anything so awful. Napalm is stuck to my memory and is still burning after all these years. My dreams are disfigured by it. 
One day in the last week of April, we went through some ground that had been held by the North Koreans. Due to the prior use of napalm, we encountered no resistance. The dead were burned black. One Marine put an unspoke cigarette in a charred mouth with still white teeth of a corpse suspended in the agony of immolation. This gag was good for morale. As the hardened platoon passed by, they cracked jokes. You want a light, buddy? Be careful with those cigarettes, they'll make you cough. That last puff must have been a ball buster. Is that filtered or unfiltered? I laugh too. <laughs> Might as well. The war provided no shortage of, rea- of grim reality checks to one's pre- patriotic pretensions. During the retreat, my friend Jim Abels was accidentally shot in the back by one of his own men who failed to put his weapon on safe. The trigger snagged on something while they climbed into a tank onto a tank for a ride. Jim fell off the tank and onto the road. I ran over to him just in time to hear him gasp a final word, a cliche of war movies and novels that happens to be something dying men really say. Shit. Abel's had loved his home state of Texas. Leading patrols, his first three checkpoints would be Tango Echo X-Ray, followed by Alpha Sierra. I would learn that Abel's had worked for O.C. Fisher, a useless congressman from Texas 21st District. A dozen years later, while I was working in Kennedy's West Wing, I paid a visit to Fisher's office. No sooner could I mention Abel's than this blowhard sounded off in a loud drawl about how he knew Abel's died gloriously keeping us safe from the communists. He assembled his staff and said that. He assembled his entire staff in his office and prompted me to regale them about Abel's patriotic and heroic end. By then I had lied to Gold Star mothers and wives about the circumstances of their beloved's deaths. I had let them think that it had been great or purposeful or that their boys hadn't suffered or gone out screaming. But I told this group, that's not what happened. Jim died because another Marine's safety was off and it was fucking tragic and awful and his last words were, shit. Looking back, I know I shouldn't have used those bitter words, but I loved Jim and I didn't know how to handle the way this slob was talking about him. I know how to handle that. I didn't do it. I don't know why I did it. So it didn't do Jim any good. Anyway. You eventually you get transferred out of Charlie Company's supply to become the mortar section leader of Charlie Company, supporting the rifle platoons with 60 millimeter rounds lobbed with limited accuracy and effectiveness from portable mortar tubes. In his history of the Korean War, the late David Halberstam describes the situation that spring 1951. The war had settled into an unbearable, unwinnable battle. It had reached the point where there were no more victories, only death. It may have seemed unbearable, but both sides bore it. Right. War is all about bearing the unbearable. Oftentimes discomfort, whether from the cold or rain or lack of hot food, is what breaks a man when heaped upon with the many other stresses and fears of combat. One reason they stopped executing men who broke down on the line after World War I was that psychologists came to understand that given enough time in the shit, the psychiatric casualty rate will reach 100% in any unit. 
Do you believe that? Yep. Yeah, I do too. I mean, there's a limitation to what people can take. I guess the I guess no. You know why I would say I wouldn't wouldn't believe it is because the only way you wouldn't believe it is there's some people will die before they reach that point. Right. But that's the only thing that will keep it from reaching a hundred percent. They wounded or get it, but no longer part, no longer statistic of that. Thing. That's true. Our company commander, Spike Shenning, was a very careful man who always insisted on neatly packed knapsacks, clean, dry shaves, the burial of every rationed can or cigarette butt. He never shouted, but a look from Spike was enough. A grimace from him was like a form of corporal punishment. His only non-regulation gear was a carved walking stick that underscored his walk-in-the-park attitude toward danger. Spike was a Mustang Marine who had started as a boot and worked or rather fought his way up to become a commissioned officer. A veteran of Tarawa and Iwo Jima, he was a badass if there ever was one. Normally Spike was not reckless, but he had one unfortunate habit. He would not bend under actual or potential fire. There is a combat photographer's photo taken on that beautiful spring morning showing Spike standing upright, leaning casualty against the remains of a small tree that had been stunted by previous exchange of fire. He set an unfortunate example for those around to do likewise, breaking two of the most basic rules of movement in a war zone. Don't stand on a ridge line, don't silhouette yourself. My mortar section was dug in nearby. I got up from my hole to join the group on the ridge. Spike had just ordered the platoon leader who'd been relieved to take over my mortar platoon section and gave me and give me pl uh, command of the platoon trying to make the change without hurting a good man. So I didn't cover this part, but he was basically firing this platoon commander and he's gonna put you into that platoon. Yeah. And he's trying to make the change without hurting a good man or flattering me. Spike said this switch was not a big deal, merely an exchange that would give each of us civilians a chance to learn yet another Marine job. As ordered, I left the group and headed towards second platoon's position in, in relative safety below the crest of the ridge. I had moved no more than 15 or 20 yards when a shell exploded on the ridge line. An enemy spotter must have found it an irresistible target. Everyone on the ridge had been hit. Half of my predecessor's clothes had been blown off. He was riddled with shrapnel and destined to wake up in a hospital to begin a long stay. Spike was still on his feet, but he had no helmet and had a nasty wound with lots of bloods, but no brain showing. Years later, Spike would get hit, get hit again, this time in Vietnam. I asked him what happened. The same fucking thing. I was standing on a hill out in the open and they blew me up. It was uh, something. Others were stunned, but less seriously wounded. When a Marine in charge goes down, the maps are passed on to the next in line. Spike looked at his executive officer and mumbled, you know where the maps are. Then he went down, dazed and drifting in and out. Our company got a new commander and I got a rifle platoon. So that's how you, that's how you, that's your taking over your rifle platoon. And that's the scenario right there. Right. We were talking a little bit about. We have a memory, I have my, on my desk now, I have a hand grenade someone threw at me uh, a while ago and I disarmed it. And then, uh, also a railroad spike that was silver plated, or it looked to be silver plated, full size. And, uh, and that water, that's Spike Shenning, they call Spike. And some of the men who served with me 
some reunion, someone came up with that. I like that he called you guys civilians. Oh, he said, he said, I didn't like it at all. He said, uh, he said something, something, you university boys, you civilians are ruining my profession. And he just felt somehow he could mold us to be something, uh, have some sort of value uh, compared with, with those Marines he had really grown up with. Yeah. The old but breed. He, he was, he, yeah. He was. He didn't get to be old, but he, he did, and he ended up his days uh, going to disaster parts in the world uh, on behalf of the of the uh, Red Cross. He's a good guy. Amazing. You're talking to. And we weren't as bad as he thought we were. <laughs> <laughs> he, I'm sure he still thought it. <laughs> really setting a high standard, you know. I think yeah, that's, that's a good the call. idea. Well, Steve experienced that sort of thing. Um. You were going back to the book. Night was a tender time. The enemy moved on hills around us using bugles to communicate, relay messages, and drive point, drive the point home that we were awful and totally surrounded. The enemy were very good at moving silently, sometimes able to enter a fighting hole undetected. One night, they snatched a guy from Pete's platoon right out of his two-man hole. His partner awoke to find him gone, never to be heard from or accounted for. I just insert that and that text just to say that the pistol I had, I wore that my dad gave me. But after that incident, I uh, um, cut away the, um, the leather part that was between that and the, and the trigger. So I figured if I got wakened at night, at least I could fire through the holster. Uh, I didn't really want to be hauled off of somebody's gifts. Yeah. And here you talk about something else. Other than dark, I had one great fear landmines more specifically i feared one in particular one particular wound they tend to inflict there's an anti-personnel mind known as a bouncing betty which shoots a light charge up from the ground around a waist height before detonating it's designed to wound and maim not to kill from a tactical point of view it's as brilliant as it is evil because a wounded man takes a whole fire team out of action while they work to stabilize and move him walking through my first minefield I kept one hand deep in my pocket, subtly clutching my brains. Sometimes when a guy loses his hand in combat, it's because he was using it to cover something of even more value to him. You continue on. Sometimes the enemy flowed around us chasing bits and pieces of retreating US and Korean army units. When they did attack our positions directly, they suffered tremendous losses. In the morning after an assault, there were piles of bodies in front of our lines, which were counted for the sake of those in the rear who equated body counts with winning. 152 one morning, 170-something another. Our losses were few during such attacks, but so were our numbers. I had some photographs of that uh, one one morning of that nature taken by a some attached combat photographer or whatever. And there's unbelievable numbers of them. And so I thought people would lie about numbers so that the colonel or the general would think, well, what a heroic guys they are. But uh, when you see several hundred uh, in front of you, for the, really from the advent of the machine gun um, and our ability to make these interlocking bands of fire, and you see the result of it, it really is true. It's, it's a slaughter. It didn't bother me one tiny bit, not nearly as much as an individual dead uh, um, 
North Korean or Chinese. It's just there's such a mass that you, you can't quite grasp what uh, what that's like. So you, so what sticks in my head much more than that is uh, an individual uh, who I go as far away as you and kill, mm. and that didn't make a fucking bit of difference to the two or three hundred. Um, except it does because you can't. Your mind isn't capable of. My mind, anyway, is not capable of grasping that sort of a thing. You don't even see in a in a cattle slaughterhouse, uh, where individually, mm. what can you do? Mm. Well, you know better than that. I, but the same thing. It's just, and I hope that that's a human trait that at least somehow something reaches into you and, and sticks with you what you've done. I believe it is. You continue on here. Around May 15th, we received replacements. Newcomers usually didn't last long, and their losses were less painful if we didn't get to know them. Before going out on one patrol, I noticed that one of the greenest replacements was nervous, was so nervous that he was shaking. Against standard operating procedures and the obvious wishes of my platoon sergeant and squad leaders, I ordered that the kid, who looked about 12, stay behind to guard the packs. The patrol went out and it was without incident. However, when we returned from our walk, the new kid was gone. McCloskey came over to tell me what happened. After we left, the kid had gone down to shoot the shit with a fellow replacement from Pete's platoon. The kid sat on a landmine. We sent the kid, we sent the dead lads back, pack to the rear, where sensitive articles such as condoms would be removed before whatever personal items it may have contained were sent home to his next of kin. He was so new that not one of us could recall his name. Pete and his platoon sergeant profusely thanked me. The boy had cleared a mind for us without even nicking anyone else. Later that month, when a fresh batch of replacements hiked past our position on their way to the company command post, I turned my back to avoid even looking at them. But one in particular noticed my averted eyes. It's a fine thing to travel thousands of miles to find someone who won't even say hello. Douglas Dacey, is that right, Dacey? Dacey. Douglas Dacey, a buddy from PLC, stepped out of their ranks. I recognized his Texas drawl. Dacey was a veteran of World War II, the son of a Lebanese immigrant who had sent all his boys to war by way of thanking America for its generosity. Dacey was also the heir to a small fortune and had used his privilege to get into the fighting rather than avoid it. His father, his place in the infantry was secured as a favor to his father by none other than Lyndon Baines Johnson. During his first week in Korea, Dacey was lightly wounded by shrapnel. He didn't report the wound because he was afraid he'd get a purple heart, and if he got another after that, he might be sent home. While Dacey was still at Quantico, he looked after Mary in D.C. When he got deployed, he told her, I'm going to look after Chuck. Dacey's men came to call him the Undertaker because more than once he crawled forward under fire to drag a dead Marine back to our lines. I would name my second son after Douglas. He went on to serve our government in secret ways, became an economics professor, and eventually retired to a ranch in Kyle, Texas, where he and his twin brother raised cows. They can't bring themselves to slaughter them. An old age, an old age home for cows. You can't kill them once, once you've named them, Dacey told me. I was going to say about him, but just uh, the, uh, we know very well, it's not uncommon, I suppose, that he finished his Marine career by signing over to the CIA, and there's just ways you could, 
the economics professor didn't go to the place where he went. Mm-hmm. So when, when the things got worse, he's a little guy, you know, with, with uh, he looks like a fucking Lebanese immigrant, whatever they look like. But uh, anyway, we said, Jesus, nowadays, we know what you're doing. But now you get the ultimate way to serve your country. We'll just, uh, you know, you look like a fucking Arab. We'll dress you in a bed sheet, drop you, and you get in among and really do a great job for your pals at the CIA. <laughs> he said, what makes you think things like, he didn't have a drawl, he had a shit accent, not real. You don't make you think things like that about me. I'm a professor. <laughs> anyway, he was a beauty. He's in a nut house now, not that. He's the last days of, of what do you call it, Alzheimer's. Yeah. And, uh, but he's, he doesn't know about it. And he was, he was a good guy. He's a good guy right now. So that same group of replacements, and, and this, this happens. A runner followed Dacey and the replacements up a hill with a telegram for me. Please pass to Lieutenant Charles U. Daly, 050418. Son Michael weighing five pounds, 12 and three quarters ounces, born Saturday, 19 May at 2.06 p.m. A black-haired Mick, Mary and Michael both fine, love Mary. I folded up the telegram and put it in my wallet and thought it'd be nice to have if I make it. Now that note belongs to Michael's first daughter, my first grandchild, Sinead. So that's how you get notified that you had your first kid. I hate to be, I know you have three daughters, so I should be careful, but I, don't, I didn't put it in there, but the uh, classy had the other platoon, first platoon, and um, I, I didn't know, you said, you know, one of my guys said, we had a son, because his, his was a daughter, and she said, that's terrible. Yeah, I have three daughters and a son, yes. It's, uh, I knew that when you said that. <laughs> I can take my life in my hands, and I'm sure as hell I can talk to your wife about it. Well, yeah, we'll leave it at that. Right. <laughs> uh, and this is good. Uh, every, every year on my birthday, so now we're going into uh, another section of the book every year on my birthday may 29th pete gives me a call and tells me you should have died today sometimes he adds you miserable son of a bitch i dredge up some old comeback and we reminisce about what happened that day in 1951 my citation puts it like this the president of the united states of america takes pleasure in presenting the silver star to first lieutenant charles u daly united states marine corps for conspicuous gallantry and intrepidity as a as leader of a rifle platoon of Company C, 1st Battalion, 5th Marines, 1st Marine Division in action against enemy aggressor forces in Korea on 29 May 1951. Assigned the mission of driving a strong enemy force from well-maintained, from well-entrenched positions on a high knob north of Inje. Inje. Inje, 1st Lieutenant Daly boldly led his men up a narrow spine completely devoid of cover and concealment and carried out a successful assault against the hostile strong points in the face of fierce automatic weapons and small arms fire, killing many of the enemy and forcing the remainder to retreat in disorder. Quickly reorganizing his unit, he pursued fleeting hostile troops and overran an enemy regimental command post, capturing many valuable documents and prisoners. By his marked courage, skilled leadership, and unswerving devotion to duty, First Lieutenant Daly served to inspire all who observed him and upheld the highest traditions of the United States Naval Service. And that's your citation. 
but you add, those words omit the part of the day that I would go on reliving. The guilt over what I did and what I didn't do. And the feeling that the bravest thing I did, that all of us did, was just keep moving uphill toward gunfire. My, my citation leaves out two war crimes I committed, crimes for which I was only punished with horrible memories. There's no mention of the men on both sides who died or sustained awful wounds for my red and white and blue ribbon with a star dangling from it. And the words leave out just how hard it is to get young men to fire accurately or at all so that they kill other young men. May 29th was a beautiful morning after a chilly, tense night. I turned 24, probably my last birthday. Possibly. It was my platoon's turn to lead the company into what had, we had been told was an area held by a formidable North Korean regiment. Our objective was to take an exceptionally rugged hill. There was a cliff just west of the top and a steep exposed slope to the east. Our only way up was a narrow spine with all cover and concealment long since blasted away. General Thomas concluded that enemy resistance in these hills, such as this one, around what was called the Kansas line, would be broken not by air power, but by the Marine riflemen. To which you respond in the book, Roger that. Oh, that's so corny. Can you take that out of there? <laughs> I said no shit or something like that. <laughs> I, I thought Roger it was one that. Of, girls. I, I thought it was one of the uh, Roger that's with that's that's a sarcastic Roger like Roger that. Yeah, that's all right. Maybe that's what it was. But don't be serious about it. It reads, it reads like a Boy Scout, which I, I got thrown out of the fucking Boy Scouts. That's another subject. <laughs> At first light, I can remember thinking that we were facing a great defensive position. Several of the platoon must have had the same thought and knew it was going to be a long day because I'd, I had company when I stepped off the trail to take a piss after we dropped packs and were getting ready to move up and out. The air was tense. Even the chattiest Marines were silent. The smokers silently smoked up a storm. I wondered if the North Koreans could smell lucky strikes on our men as we could sometimes smell garlic on theirs. With two words, you don't hear very often in modern combat, I gave the order, fix bayonets. I'm manly. I mean, that's a, that's a serious statement if you're making, going up with machine guns and you're still fixing bayonets. I mean. We didn't we weren't sure anywhere was up there, but if, just in case, and I, well, anyway, I don't, I did it, for, anyway, it's ridiculous, but it's, I did it for some other purpose, really, it's, um, it goes on. It explains yeah. why I'll tell you. That didn't help anyone's peace of mind. <laughs> but I liked bayonets for the scare factor. I knew that frightening the enemy was a good way to keep young men from getting killed on both sides. Fear is tactically useful. Warner, the new company commander, who was even greener than me, offered to call in an airstrike if we got into trouble. <laughs> I declined, pointing out that strikes had been recently been put under army command and we were running late. And with the habit of, and we're running late, and with the habit of hastily dumping their loads on friends and foe alike. Any delay in air or artillery would leave us exposed under fire. The only course of action was to get in and among the enemy so their support, mortars, guns, and heavy weapons, would have to be lifted. I just want to insert <laughs> into that text 
that uh, people maybe read was uh, that delay was caused by a, a general almond, almond I think, who um, commanded the UN forces at that time, and he uh, was an army general, and he just thought that the uh, marine system uh, conducted by the Marines and the Navy of close air support and directly uh, on an ad hoc basis the, the, the ace on the ground mm-hmm. could see what's going on and or, the, or we could endure what's going on and we had to be able to order right away. No way. He issued an order that all, requ- all requests for uh, close air goes through uh, the Army headquarters. It's, it's a built-in certain delay. Yeah, that's, that, that's that, centralized that, command and doesn't work. Well, I think that's precisely the, the, the right to, to say because it was an immensely effective, life-saving, from our selfish point of view, tactic that he destroyed. He didn't delay it, he destroyed it. It's impossible to, to do this. Anyway. <clears throat> well, going back, so, so now you go back and you say, my duty was to keep the men moving and firing. I talked with my platoon sergeant whose advice was essential because were a major firefight to take place, it would be my first. We agreed that if we came under fire, the lead squad would charge directly up the spine, second squad would fire everything they had at the ridge to the west of the hill, and third squad would continue the charge led by the first squad. The machine gun section attached to the platoon would follow and set up on the hilltop as soon as it was secure to fend off any counterattack. We just received reports that elsewhere a North Korean had played dead just like uh, Dose at Chosen. Dose, yeah. Dose at Chosen. And it shot a couple Marines in the back after they walked past. I wanted to make sure that if it didn't happen to, that that didn't happen to any of us. So I passed the word. If they don't stink, stick them. At 0800, we began slowly climbing up the ridge, single file on a narrow trail. There were small pines and some saplings blown leafless by the earlier shelling. To delay our advance, limbs were piled on the path, forming poor man's barbed wire. No birds sang. I was walking close behind the first squad when we came to a small knoll at the base of a much larger hill that loomed above. Billy Bell, an experienced rifleman from Arizona, got ready to toss a grenade over the crest of the knoll just in case there was an ambush waiting there. Not wanting to alert the enemy to our advance and afraid of seeming trigger happy in a situation where there might be no enemy, I knocked my wedding ring against the stock of my carbine to get Bell's attention and signaled no hand grenade. He put the grenade back in his pocket and resumed leading our first team over the crest of the hill in a crouched walk. In an instant, Bell and two other Marines went down under a shower of enemy grenades and bullets. The rest of the squad rolled off the rise, and those of us who weren't shocked into inaction began shooting. Fire, fire. Shoot, goddammit, fire. Bell is down. Grenade, shit, I'm hit. Corman, help. Keep going. Fire, fire, fire. Kill those cocksuckers. They're bailing out. I'm out of ammo. Use your fucking bayonet. Keep going. Stick them. Fire, goddammit. Fire. I figured the louder we were, the more we'd give the impression that we were a huge force ready to kill anyone standing between us and the Yalu River. The sound of two dozen or so riflemen firing all at once is impressive, Daisy would recall. It sounded like World War II up there. 
I let loose all the rounds in my carbine, a- aiming uphill at no particular target. I reversed my magazine and loaded a second that I had taped to it for faster reloading and, a- and resumed firing, adding to the din. An unlucky North Korean popped up in front of me from a hole. His throat and jaw blew apart with the squeeze of my trigger finger. A shout from the- my radio man, the captain wants you. He's telling us to drop back and wait for artillery. Tell him to go fuck himself. There were so many grenades being tossed down the hill at us that I thought we were under mortar fire. We reached the top of the main hill. There were many enemy dead, wounded, and surrendering. I was wild with frustration because my caution on the knoll had been costly. With a few riflemen, I kept running over to the far side of the hill in pursuit of some fleeing enemy. We were surrounded, we were astounded to find our charge had been had put us among a bunch of North Korean officers with maps still in their hands as though they'd been in a routine review of their position. Unbelievable. Another unarmed enemy officer crawled out of a command bunker and started berating his comrades, apparently upset that they were surrendering to this handful of exhausted Marines. One version of what happened next appears in a chapter about me in Pete's book, The Taking of Hill 610, Daly personally pushed the captured and surly Korean commander off a thousand foot cliff. That's a crime. <laughs> That's the legend. And a prime example of how the truth gets warped by memory and the intense emotions of combat and, and its aftermath. Here's the facts. I knew we had to shut this guy up before he got his men to realize that we were overextended, low on ammo, outnumbered, and vulnerable. My carbine was empty so I couldn't have shot him even if I wanted to, which I did not. I figured he'd be less noisy with his clothes off, so I threatened the officer with my bayonet and motioned for him and his men to strip, which some of them proceeded to do. I have a picture of the three of them, hands up raised, two clad in undershirts, and one in longer underwear held together by a string that came undone, revealing his limp dick. You can see their ribs. They look dazed and frightened. All prisoners except the loud officer were tense but silent. Without warning, their leader turned, dashed over the cliff's edge, and may have been shot in the back. That's the problem. By an alert rifleman who still had some rounds in his weapon. In any case, the major could run, but he could not fly. That's a smart ass remark. And I regret it. I don't. He he didn't have to get killed. Anyway, he, he didn't have what? He didn't have to get killed. It sounds like it sounds it sounds like he killed himself. No, he didn't. Anyway, that's just that's mostly the truth. But it, anyway, was he running? Was he making a move? And what, what, what? Yeah, he was making a move, and and uh, I didn't, I mean, so upset that we were we were outnumbered. We had these goddamn geniuses on their side there, and and it just. Uh, um, I don't think my cabin was empty. I don't, anyway, it's just a mess. So, so Pete tried to protect me, and uh, got okay. it. Yeah, I don't know what I got. So, did you guys lead the enemy? At this point, all other firing had stopped except for picking up the pieces. This fight was over. The pieces included Billy Bell's right arm blown off at the shoulder. He was leaning against a tree, 
holding a compress, calm and pale. I hope you're left-handed, I said, not knowing what else to express, not knowing how else to express my concern without upsetting him. He responded, I am now, Lieutenant. Elsewhere on the hill, we lost Lieutenant Buckman, who on numerous occasions on board the troop ship had said, I'm going to die in Korea. There were screams coming from a badly wounded North Korean laying close by. His dying was getting louder and louder. And He's I dying if, if, if it was that. And that's, yeah, it seems so. And I could see how much that sound was bugging the platoon. A young corporal bought, brought it up, brought up the decent thing to do. Lieutenant Daly, you want me to do him a favor? Do it. A shot, then silence. I knew then and I know now that shooting a prisoner or ordering such a killing is a war crime regardless of the victim's condition. My only punishment has been the unending knowledge of my guilt. I know that I shouldn't have ordered it. I know that if it had to be done, I should have done it with my own revolver and protected my fellow Marine from that memory. I hear that shot right now. You continue on. After the murder came the next grim task. Searching the pockets of enemy corpses for papers to send back to intelligence officers. One enemy had half of his head missing. Daisy came up to see how I was doing. I pointed to the corpse and said, that guy's lucky his head wasn't blown off completely. Yeah, that might have killed him. In one pocket, I found a picture of what must have been a man's wife and the newborn baby he'd never see. Hey, Lieutenant. Don't feel so bad, said David Ivins, a talented machine gunner who could see I was upset. At least he got to see a picture of his baby. I wondered if I would be so lucky. I pocketed the three-striped shoulder board of an officer I killed in the first moments of the battle. Daisy kept an unexploded hand grenade that must have been thrown by a North Korean too frantic to pull the pin. Douglas disarmed it, and when we met again back in the States, he gave it to me. I've used it as a paperweight ever since. The Chiggy Bearers arrived with ammunition, water, rations, and our packs from the bottom of the hill. We sat and hydrated among the dead and wounded. Those who could eat ate cold tinned rations for lunch. Everyone's favorite was the canned fruit cocktail. Some men would eat the fruit cocktail first in case they got wounded or otherwise they or otherwise had their meal interrupted. They would have at least enjoyed the best course. I wrote a page or two about the day to my dad. I wanted him to know I'd fought well That's before ridiculous. I was That's the killed. same fucking thing they did in World War I. This is some game we play. I mean, these are obviously, you're going through these, these, these situations over there, and you're 23 years old at this time? Maybe 24? That day. Oh, you, you turned 24 that day? That was, that was probably talking about, yeah. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> you, you know, I don't know if I've covered it well enough, but it seemed like with with a lot of the things that you wrote, 
you didn't really think you were going to make it through this situation. Not really. I didn't, on the other hand, in the midst of the situation, that I mean, you can't stand around on this halfway up a hill with a thumb in your ass. And so I already committed myself to that. And I just, it is not easy to have, uh, it sounds trite, to have these guys fire. I mean, they're firing, they're not firing the firing range and just disqualifying to be a rifleman or something like that. They're fighting to kill and, and, uh, and get through all this stuff. And, and the only way to do it is, is keep going and keep firing. And, and as Daisy said, it sounded like World War II, but I, I think that, that uh, there wasn't much choice in, in that. And I just later on when when I see these goddamn executives come out of their holes, uh, that got me cranked up as far as not stopping. Mm-hmm. And uh, the um, I don't know what I thought. Yeah, I mean, I mean, even beyond this one day, when you read the whole section again, obviously I'm jumping through huge pieces of this, but I don't think I. I mean, it, it doesn't seem like you thought you were going to live through this war. You know, it seemed like, yeah. I mean, that situation, you were you were doing what you had to do. I mean, you, you know, you're not thinking, you're not thinking like long-term thoughts when you're charging up a hill towards machine gun. You're exactly. just doing what you got to do to survive. But the other parts of it where you're, many times you say, look, I didn't think I was going to see my kid. I didn't think I was, and even when you say you wrote a, a page or two to your dad about what you did that day, because you wanted your dad to know, hey, you know, I did my duty. Isn't that awful? That's what, what um, in World War One, one of the Charlies said, you know, I played the game yesterday. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a fucking game, but, it, but it, I it, so it was a different expression. But somehow he wanted, I mean, I love my dad, and I wanted him to be proud of me. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had no illusions about what sort of shape the body might come back in. It wasn't that, it was just, what, uh, I don't know, it's crazy that, that I'm out of respect for him, I'm killing some people. It's ridiculous. Going back to the book, there was another hill a couple days later that we occupied with no resistance. David <laughs> David Ivins, you say Ivins? Ivins, I-V-E-N-S. David Ivins was setting up his machine gun a couple feet above where I was sitting safely below the crest of the hill. We laughed about how easy the hill had been taken compared to May 29th. Easy, except... He was cleaning his... his actually, that's a, in the book, that's not a, he was just cleaning parts of his machine gun, just messing around. There okay. was nothing going on. Easy except a faulty radio left me out of touch. McCloskey had sensed my problem and dispatched his own radio man, Rocky Bruder, up the hill to establish comms. Rocky paused to catch his breath just short of my position, winded and sweaty from his radio-laden climb. Get up here, I said. I've got to check in with the CP right now. Rocky grunted, moved the last few feet, and started to hand me the mic connected by a short wire to the radio on his back. Somewhere from behind, a burst of machine gun fire smacked into us. First one blast, then the distant gunner adjusted his aim, one click over, then one up, before firing a second burst. The first volley to my right hit Rocky in the back. The next, high into my left, made Ivan's head explode. Ivan's head explode. Rocky mumbled, Corman, in his last instant of life. I could hear the call, gunner down, second gunner up, keeping the whole war moving smoothly. 
I believe then and I believe now that that lethal fire had come from our own distant guns. I should have known that might happen. I'd been so anxious to reestablish radio contact because of how quickly we had taken the hill. I didn't want our gunners to be to mistake our movement near the crest of the hill for enemy defenders, not realizing there weren't any defenders. Brain matter and blood were splattered all over me. In the coming days, every time I encountered water in streams and rain and canteens, I would try and wash the stains off. I drank the water in the canteens, so that's inaccurate. This is a... Uh, you know, this is something that w- when when I wrote my first book called Extreme Ownership, it opens up the first chapter is about a fracture side, a blue-on-blue situation that I was in charge of. And there was a friendly Iraqi soldier that was killed. One of my guys was wounded. There were several other friendly Iraqi soldiers that were wounded. It was a, it was a total nightmare. And when that happened to me, I mean, that was very early on in my second deployment to Iraq. And... The, the fighting in Ramadi was such that there was mayhem and confusion and when you get in these situations, these, these fratricides, these what we called blue on blue, they can happen and, and I made it my mission to try and teach the next generation of SEALs how to prevent these things from happening. But when it happened, it was so uh, you know, we hadn't been in combat for a really long time in America. And so we didn't have guys that understood the battlefield and understood how easily these things could happen. Now, luckily for me, or I don't know if it's, yeah, luckily for me, there was we, I, there was a guy that was in the SEAL teams who had been a platoon commander in Way City in the Marine Corps in Vietnam. And, and he came and visited us right after this had happened. And he said, hey, the, the, I think he told me, you know, a third of the casualties in Way City were friendly fire. He's like, this is what happens. He goes, it's horrible. Here's, you know, and, and I looked at it like, okay, here's the things that we're going to do to prevent it from happening. But it's one of those things that it's very hard, I think, for civilians to understand how, how easily these things can unfold. And this is a classic example. You got supporting fire elements that are looking at this hill that you guys are taking. And you guys take it so quickly that by the time you get to the top, these guys that are whatever, 800 meters away or 1,000 meters away, they see movement on this hilltop, they think they're helping you, but they're actually engaging your men. That's right. That's right. I think that they're, in one of those uh, recent battles in the New East, that there was an NFL football player who was, who was killed, yeah. and right away they gave him a silver star and everything in the garden was wonderful. And it would have been okay to leave that alone, but the fact came out that he was shot by his own men, by totally by error. Yeah, it was, it was a. It and was the fact new. remains that he wanted to go and do something for his country, put the football down, mm-hmm. put the other helmet on, and, and uh, his his, uh, his own killed him. But that's uh, you start telling the uh, the people at home. Who knew him, or, or and others who knew of him, or others who didn't know it at all, um, that uh, it was heroically better off giving the fucking silver star and let it go. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that's uh, Pat Tillman, and yeah. Again, this is the 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 horrible situation. You know, it's a horrible situation. It's dark. You're maneuvering through enemy territory. You're expecting to get contacted, and you know, if you're not paying attention, this is why there's such a heavy burden on leadership. Because 
it's a leadership that has to try and track these things and keep and make sense of what's going on in the battlefield. And if a millisecond goes by and you lose that control, which which happens, you've got to set yourselves up so you prevent this sort of situations. And it's it's a nightmare. And this is one of the, in my opinion, this is the one of the worst things in war is friendly fire because there's it's absolutely uh, you know trying to explain this is so hard because people don't understand how confusing and complex these things are as they unfold um as they, uh, as they unfold or flow apart or whatever it's not, yeah, not, not unfold, a systematic thing yeah it's nothing you teen learn to quantical when going back to the book when pete came up the hill and saw me splattered with blood and brains he tried to call me beautiful day isn't it right on the day i got my silver star elsewhere on the slope pete and his platoon approached an enemy position and were pelted with grenades pfc wit l moorhead kicked the grenades off the ridge one by one attempting to to, to dispose of one grenade in this way he slipped Rather than take cover, Moreland shouted for his buddies to get down and then rolled on the grenade, absorbing the blast with his body and probably saving the lives of Pete and others nearby. For his courage and selflessness, Moreland was posthumously awarded the Medal of Honor. But the recognition of Moreland's action goes beyond the authority of, what con- of the Congress and the President. In John fifteen thirteen, it is written that greater love hath no man than this, that a man laid down his life for his friends. I recall those words because they are etched on a plaque beside a stained glass window in the Church of Ireland in Bandon, honoring those from the town who were lost in the Great War. My uncle Charlie, for whom I'm, for whom I'm named, appears on the list of the dead, and my mother's name is honored among the list of survivors for her services as a nurse's aide. If Pete and I have a hard time talking about the facts of war to anyone but each other, it's not just because we share indelibly graphic memories like the image of what a grenade does to a human body, but because we have experienced that kind of love. I don't know if the gospel's author had ever been in combat zone, but I've heard these words put a similar way by people who have. You continue on with sort of exposing some of the dark humor that comes out or and what it does to people. Going back to the book here, war changes the meaning of normal in ways big and small. There's a joke about a Marine who comes home to his parents and says, pass the fucking cake, butter, at the dinner table. One June day, having rotated off the line, we watched an American tank approach a shallow river. You could sense the driver trying to decide whether to take the muddy bypass or stay on the road. Either could have been mined. We speculated and made mock bets. The tank took a detour. Kaboom. A man flew out of the open hatch, now legless. One of our riflemen yelled with excitement, I win. My career as a platoon leader ended early on the morning of June 12, 1951. I spent the night of June 11th, my second wedding anniversary, with my platoon manning a lonely outpost ahead of our lines just north of the town of Inje. Why am I saying that wrong? Inji. Inji. 
I don't know. That's the way we pronounce it. God knows how they pronounce it. Sergeant Murphy and I laid up in an abandoned enemy bunker. An attack on our position could have doomed us, but it didn't come. I felt good, even though I still had little little hope of living to hold my son. A picture of him Mary had sent had arrived in a letter enclosed with a melted Heath bar. That made me feel lucky. What happened next was lucky, depending on how you look at it. It's how I got home to Michael and Mary. Having seen his face suddenly gave me more to lose. Dying was going to be hard. At first light, I told Sergeant Murphy I was going out of the bunker to check our perimeter. He advised me not to go, saying he'd already done it a couple hours before. But I was restless and anxious about the strain of a 50% watch with no sergeants. All but Murphy had been killed, wounded, or rotated. I was going to tell the guys that they could get some rest. I was getting up from my hands and knees after crawling out of the bunker when I sensed that I had company. I rose up just as a bullet ripped across the front of my jacket and whacked into my left arm. Corman, lieutenant's down. I grabbed my arm above the wound, wound and waited for the corpsman. There was no sign of a real attack. An unseen sniper had spotted an easy target. The corpsman cut away my sleeve, revealing bones sticking through a red and pink mess. The arm was dangling below the elbow. I told him just to cut it off. Not me, he said, tightening down the tourniquet. I got on the radio to tell Company HQ what had happened. It was then that I learned the whole morning it was a mess. Third platoon's leader had been hit with shrapnel from a mortar round. The battalion's new executive officer, Jack Jones, the real leader who kept the colonel somewhat in check, had a chunk of his right hand blown off by a booby trap hidden in a poor man's barbed wire. Pete had been hit in the leg while helping out one of his wounded. So Charlie Company had no platoon leaders and the battalion had an unfettered idiot in command. Meaning your battalion commander. Right. By now I was getting sore because of the numbing impact of the bullet and the subsequent surge of adrenaline had worn off. Because of our isolated position, I decided to make my own way back to our lines rather than rob our platoon of riflemen carrying me off. I couldn't do that if I was stoned on morphine, so there would be no pain relief until I made it to our lines. I started the hike from the outpost to the battalion HQ. That sounds HQ. very pious, but I, I had no idea that morphine didn't do any good or not. I just knew I had to get my ass out of there and, and not take four Marines or even one walker mm-hmm. with me. I started the hike down from the outpost to the battalion HQ where I would be flown to a field hospital. In Korea, hospitals were just coming into use. Helicopters were just coming into use and were too tiny and fragile to risk ahead of the lines to pick up those who got hit on outpost or patrol. In every war since, improvements in helicopter capabilities translate to save lives and limbs. Now they can land much closer to the action and deliver wounded men to advanced medical care within minutes. On my way to the Little Bird, I had to walk through a shallow creek. I wasn't feeling great, but I felt worse when two rounds from a distant rifleman struck the water near me. I turned toward the ridge where the shots had come from and gave the shooter the finger with my good arm. I don't know what, if anything, that means in Korea, but the shooting stopped, and he let me go. At the shelter of the command post, I saw a stretcher with McCloskey on it. He was all set to go farther to the rear and have his fairly minor wound treated, get laid, and return to duty. He took one look at me, rolled off the stretcher, stood up, said a quick goodbye, and limped back up the valley to take over one of the remaining platoons. His own wound could wait. I sat down and got my first morphine shot of the day. A tiny helicopter whirled in the kind with a bubble canopy you may know from the opening credits of the TV show MASH, The Bell 47. 
As I was being helped into the passenger seat, I noticed a bumper sticker on the cockpit's windshield. Join the Marines. It's funny guy. <laughs> got to keep that sense of humor, Jeez, I guess. Jeez, you got the guys strapped in those, in those baskets, and they, you know, some died, some died, some way. But a guy scooting along at fifteen hundred feet, and he. You can't hear him yell because the thing is so noisy, but he's he's going to land, and the guy's on this side for some job. We took off in a cloud of dust, which must have been tough on the men in the baskets. <laughs> we were about 10 or 15, within about 10 or 15 minutes, we sat down near one end of a big brown tent. This was a battalion aid station, a field hospital staffed with Navy doctors, the Corps answers, the Corps' answer to an Army MASH. Unlike MASH, the TV show, which fictionalized this aspects of the Korean War. There was no laughter in this tent, no cute nurses, no fun, just young men suffering in silence, each waiting for his stretcher to be lifted up and placed on a pair of wooden sawhorses of the sort used by carpenters to bring wood up to a convenient height for cutting. Each bloody stretcher became, a, became its own operating table. Between each set of stretchers stood dungaree-clad surgeons working under gas lamps dangling from the ceiling besides bottles of blood plasma and IV fluid. General anesthesia was rarely used. Speed was vital. The mission was to stabilize patients who had the best chances for more advanced treatment elsewhere and comfort the ones who weren't going to make it. Aid station doctors referred to their duty as meatball surgery. Outside the tent, I waited to be seen. I heard one Marine next to me die. He didn't groan, just gasped and stopped breathing. The worst sound I heard that day was the clang of shrapnel being dropped onto the stainless steel table beside the unlucky lieutenant stretcher who had been shot in the family jewels. The shrapnel had been removed from his groin. Keep that for me, he said. I'll give it to my wife and we'll push it around in a baby carriage. I've heard he's a yell man. <laughs> Bob and Ellie, very, very proud of the way he looked. He had a a strap here and a holster here. He'd gone to a lot of movies, but he was, he was good. He handled this as well as you can. But, but you know, it's not, uh, I have a photograph of, from the military, I don't Charlie has it, I think, of the military inside of that tent. And there were half a dozen of these, uh, the stretcher, and then, and then between every two, there was the doctors operating on, med on these metal tables. And it's, it's an amazing, picture because it's just uh, you don't really uh, comprehend just how, uh, how it went through mm -hmm. and, and the conditions in which they operated and, and meatball surgery probably not a bad expression but but they were really uh, it was in and out and it seemed uh, to me just almost mechanical how fast it was so I was quite nervous that time by that time I, I didn't want to go home with my wife the Canadian pacifist and so on and, and I would try not to go home lopsided. I'm pretty greedy. I was happy to be alive, but the uh, so I really kept saying, "I mean, leave it," and so on. And I anyway, so it went on. Yeah, the the, the dead marine. This is you back going back to the book. The dead marine was still uncovered when two corpsmen carried my stretcher inside and placed it on the sawhorses. At some of the stations, a corpsman or nurse would work on a foot or leg, while a surgeon tended to a chest or head wound on the same man. I didn't notice much in the way of surgical gloves or hand washing between jobs. I noticed no stench, perhaps because I stunk. How you doing, a surgeon asked. He loosened the field dressing, resulting in what seemed like a gush of blood. 
Doc, I can't go home lopsided. You're not going to cut it off, are you? By now, I was hoping to keep the arm. Sorry. Not right now. We can wait for it to fall off. Then he surprised me by gently touching my face with his bloody finger. That touch made my eyes water. So I turned to my head. (laughs) Tears returned to my eyes remembering that touch in that moment of tenderness. It was amazing. All that it was meatball surgery and so on. He was a human being doing those things. Pretty good. Quite good. I don't like pretty. Hmm. I woke aboard the USS Haven in the late <laughs> afternoon of what had been a very long day. That same night on the ship, after being washed, I was wheeled into a cabin where I rested in a bed between white sheets for the first time since February. I had been bleeding continuously all day, so I felt weak. Like a figment of my morphine injections, Jack Jones appeared in my cabin. The doctors had just finished clipping away shredded bits of his hand, the final wound of five he had received since he had enlisted at age 17 in the last war. The next morning, June 13th, we were flown to a former Japanese military hospital in Yokosuka, for, for, for further patching up. We took a short walk outside the gate where we found a little bar. Jack was a Mormon and didn't drink, but he watched me put back a few. The barman recognized us as Marines. He spoke English and told us he was on Iwo Jima. You were on Iwo, Jack said. How come I didn't kill you? Matter of fact, without a hint of resentment or prejudice. Remarkable. What's that? It's remarkable, he must have been on leave or something. <laughs> yeah, no doubt to survive Ewo. Meanwhile, at home, my father had been listed as my next of kin because I didn't want to shock Mary in the event, event I was killed in action or wounded. That turned out to be a terrible idea. My mother went to Mary's apartment waving the tele- telegram, good news, Chuck's been wounded. Mum must have been thinking of her dead brother and brother-in-law, along with so many others in the meat grinder of Flanders and the Somme. In the Great War, survivable wounds were good news to families back in Blighty in Ireland. But my pacifist wife didn't see it that way. She was horrified, angry, and terribly worried. Yeah, that's actually the name of this chapter is Good News, Chuck's Been Wounded. <laughs> and there's, you gotta have a certain mentality to see yeah. your, you know, yeah, your- Yeah, to understand, your, but Mary never understood that, and that just, that really did it. From Japan, where I received slightly smaller cast. We were flown from Guam and then to Hawaii. So you guys get to Hawaii, and they, they had done a, they had done a, uh, they, would take your, they would take your pants from you to make sure you don't go out on liberty. That's yeah, we were on, on the hospital, I mean on the hospital plane. They um, have their tiers of bunks, and they, they put, they take your uh, pants, and then they put a blanket on and, f- and double folded over you because uh, they had experience before with Marines fi- getting as far as Hawaii and so uh, Well, you it, guys, you guys were made, managed to get a hold of some pants. Well, we bullshitted the nurse on board because <laughs> Jack had been through this before and he said, he said, you know, that we're not going to do any harm to <laughs> look at us. But he said, just get us some clothes. And, and he even knew the gate that he could get through as he'd been, been through there another war. So um, that's how we get downtown. So you guys get, get you do your thing. Um, now y- you get back on base, and now you get this, this you know, hot-headed officer 
and we're going back to the book. A red-faced army officer gave us a lecture, and this is him basically yelling at you for, for leaving base. This base is no different from the front line. You are AWOL and there will be consequences. I will personally see to it that you are kept in this hospital until you rot. That's exactly what he said. The next day, a Marine general visited to pin purple hearts to our hospital gowns and deliver a few words about valor. All of us admire your courage. You must be looking forward to getting home. Oh, no, sir, one of the group spoke up. We've been promised to stay here until we rot. <laughs> what? <laughs> you tell that to a Marine general. Whoa. <laughs> he made sure we were out on the next flight. From Hawaii, we were flown to hospital in, tre- hospital in Treasure Island in San Francisco Bay for several days. From there to another hospital in San Antonio where we underwent more repairs and celebrated the 4th of July in hospital the beds. Distant fireworks were terrifying for a blinded Marine who awoke back in Korea, but without his sight, his rifle, or his buddies. Finally, we thumped down at Andrews Air Force Base a few miles from the Naval Hospital and my parents' home in Bethesda, loaded in stretchers stacked three high. My wound was still seeping, and my latest cast stank. The plane's big side hatch opened to the bright sunshine. As I was helped to... My turn at the top of the steep stairs, I could see a little crowd standing on the tarmac. Tarmac. There was Mary cradling a title bundle, a tiny bundle, Michael. Clad in my bright shirt like I had been on vacation, I eased my way down the stairs and gave her the best hug I could manage with my cast pressed against Michael in her arms. Be careful, warned the Navy nurse who walked me down the stairs. There's plenty more where he came from, I replied. We laughed. We cried. I had orders to report for surgery, maybe even amputation. None of that mattered. I only needed one arm to hold my baby boy. My joy in that moment was tempered by the sight of my brothers. Being unloaded on stretchers without families to hold. One of my fellow Marines from the troop ship, of my fellow Marines from the troop ship, Lieutenant Abels, Baumgart, Buckman, Cowart, Finch, Goodlock, McVeigh, Monday, Musser, Ohansian. Did I get that one right? Monday, M-U-N-D-A-Y. And then Muser, Ohansian, and Smith were killed in action. Many left wives and babies. Each widow got $10,000 life insurance payoff plus a small pension. Not much, but a lot more than was received by the Chinese and North Korean widows we created. Jack Jones and Billy Bell became teachers, as did several others. After spending years in hospitals battling near a near-fatal wound, another of our group, Dick McGue, became a priest. After his wounding in Vietnam, Spike... Shenning joined the Red Cross, supervising disaster relief efforts in sort of difficult places where he always felt at home. Besides the grenade on my desk, I have a silver spiked rail, a silver-plated railroad spike to remember him by. Repeat, sorry. The other amateur lieutenants under his tutelage all have one. Twenty-nine thousand two hundred seventy-two Marines were killed or wounded in three years of fighting in Korea, all part of the American total of. 103,284 casualties. Big percentage. These numbers are minor when compared with the death, wounding, and disappearance of 3 million North and South Korean civilians, 1.5 million North Koreans and Chinese soldiers, and 845,000 South Korean military casualties. 
you say this, people talk about the forgotten war as if future generations of students and textbook authors didn't do their job. But the fact is no one was thinking about Korea even when we were in it. 1951 is the year I Love Lucy premiered and The Catcher in the Rye was published. There was a new Chevy on the market. You go into this story here, Mary and I went to stay at, a, at the Tidewater Inn in beautiful Southern Virginia. In the bar at the inn, some locals noticed my sling and cast and assumed I was the local gentleman who they'd heard about who'd had a boating accident recently. I had to ask them to repeat the question because I couldn't imagine pleasure boating mishaps any more than they could picture the circumstances of my wound. Before dinner, the house played Dixie and everybody stood for it. I sat and breathed hard. Despite Mary holding my trembling right hand, I felt completely alone. I thought about Coward and Abel's, Rocky and, and Ivan's along with, and longed to be with them if not joining their ranks in death, at least to be back in the dirt, cracking sick jokes and feeling like my work mattered. I didn't want to die. Right? Too often that feeling would return for a very long time. It's only recently looking back with perspective that comes from a lifetime on dwelling on the personal cost of the game, as my uncle called it, that I would no longer wish to be back there with them, but wish they could be with, here with me instead. I'm beginning to grow up. You start doing your uh, therapy on your arm. The Navy doctors were able to fuse two bones in my forearms, the radius and the ulna, into one, resulting in an arm that can no longer pronate. Progress was slow. Finger exercises were frustrating. For a while, I was motivated by relief, knowing that I could keep the limb. The bullet damaged the ulnar nerve leaving me with a permanent funny bone feeling and an arm that's sensitive and somewhat painful from the elbow down. Since then, I've worn my watch on my right wrist, protecting the arm and holding it close in front of me like it's in a sling has twisted my spine over time, but today I use a walking stick when I feel like I'm listing too far over. One brilliant thing the Navy hospitals do is put you in contact and close quarters with your fellow wounded, many of whom are maimed in ways you, that make you thankful for your own condition. The one thing the doctors blew in fixing my arm was once it was it was um, going to stay attached. Um, I blew it, I guess. They explained to me the situation as you just described it there, but they said that uh, you'll always have to uh, you, you, the, the arm will permanently be uh, as if you're shaking hands like this, or turn it over so the palm is up. Now, I could have gotten rich if I just looked at the goddamn thing that way. <laughs> and right now, if I talk to you, you can give me, what, what are you, chicken shit from Hawaii? You wouldn't give me a nickel? You know, was, I worked my ass off the rest of my life, and I had it right there in my hand. So they gave you a choice? You could either be? Either way, one or the other. You can't do it because you got to merge the bones. They have one bone, now, and, okay. and you can't go flopping around. Huh, that's... So it was a blown chance. Yeah. Jeez, now I'm paying, I'm 892 and I'm paying tuition to a kid going to uh, law school. <laughs> we, You've been busy trying to make money to give it out. <laughs> well, I would have had plenty. Stand the, I would like to stand the gate of, of a Penn State law like this and say, for my son, <laughs> somebody puts a quarter, I'm going to make it for real money. I blew it. On May 31st, 1952, Lieutenant Charles U. Daly was discharged from the United States, was retired from the United States Marine Corps, as confirmed by these excerpts from the Commandant's letter. Your disability is permanently related at 40%. I regret that the physical condition 
Conditions necessitate your separation from the active list and wish you many years of happiness and prosperity. And then Pacific Molasses made good on their promise. They kept their job for for you. That's that's what I wrote about Nelson, I think, and Nelson Parker. Yeah, and that was one of the things that made you, uh, well, they took care of him, too, in the end. Well, they did, because first of all, they're a very decent company, and so I can't blame it on them, but but he told me that that, um, when he first got the job, uh, he didn't tell, he, he lied about his age, he was young, he wasn't young. But no one's going to hire a fat old black man, so he he uh, said he was much younger than the fact he was. So that then, when the end of the line came, uh, that uh, came to get Social Security, no way, because he's ten years or fifteen years younger than he said he was. And uh, this is after I left, and but the company went to bat for him and got straight around. So it's an element of corporate decency I haven't forgotten. But he had to do that to get a goddamn job, you know. And, yeah. and, and he still didn't get the rights to use the toilet, but he got the job. Jesus Christ. The um. So you get you get stationed in California for a while. Then you go to then you go to Mexico. Yeah. You get stationed down in Veracruz, Mexico, mm-hmm. and El Sarape uh, met down there. What's that? El Sarape returned to oh, the yeah, fold. Yeah, there you go. Uh, and then at the end of the day, Pacific Molasses was a corporate job and it started getting boring. Mary tried to join me, but she didn't like life south of the border. The water made her sick. Then Mexico City, she had a mixed miscarriage. By the time you were approaching 30, I had gotten, by the time I was approaching 30, I had more or less gotten over the astonishment that I hadn't died at 23 in Korea. I sensed it was time to do something with this second chance at life and selling syrup wasn't it. Uh, when I tendered my resignation, my bosses in England were certain I was going over to the competition. I told Ferguson I would never do that after all he and the company had done for me, for Nelson Parker and, Parker and for others. Not content to take me at my word, the higher-ups at Pacific instructed Jim to pay me $1,000 a month for a year to simply stay out of Mexico. <laughs> <laughs> I told Ferguson that that was generous but unnecessary. He insisted saying if, if I didn't take the money, it would confirm London's fear that I would defect to a competitor. Aren't they perfect? So there you go. Now I had two boys, one good arm, a marine disability pension, and and my stay out of money, stay out of Mexico money. I had a variety of experience for my age and no financial worries. So like many young men in such a position, I decided to become a writer. <laughs> <laughs> you end up going to the Columbia hey, School you're of You're a writer. Don't be, don't be laughing at me. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. That's what they say. Um, and then, so you go to Columbia School of Journalism, and then you start... This American Political Science or American Political Science Association Congressional Fellowship is that how you ended up getting kind of involved in politics? Well, yeah, we got, what happened was I go I go there to uh, I think some of that, in that book, but the uh, I decided to go to the journalism school. Right, big deal. So it was a big deal. But so I I had drove to. Uh, uh, Columbia Journalism School which is on 116th and Broadway in New York and um, so I parked and went in and, and I didn't know anything about the place other than the top school and for nine months you get a master's degree as a ticket for me to get to a newspaper job or something so I wanted to get it so then I go to um, in and I ask him what I'd like to go what to tell me about how to do it he said well he said classes start in uh, September but uh, but 
you, so you, this is August or late August or early September, but he said you could apply for the for the year. Not not impossible getting this one. You do it in the next year. So let me explain something to you. I'm double parked on Broadway in the car. My wife and two babies. I got to get in for school. <laughs> so the guy actually was laughing at you, but he let me in. So it was a hell of a deal. So then I had enough of a ticket there. So he to, said yes. Yes, I told him, he got a real con artist, you know. I didn't have to do that even. So uh, the, uh, they let me in, and, and long and short, I got out of that after nine months, and had done, built some, I worked at nights at a newspaper in White Plains, New York, and they had this fellowship for um, American Political Science Association Fellowship. And a guy, Eddie Williams, I knew was in previous class, a black guy, but he said, I, can get you, I think I can get you in that. It's a good deal. He said, you paid, I don't know how much the, the fellowship is, but you, they pay you to uh, spend a half of the next congressional term with a member of the House and half of it on a member of the Senate. And it, it, it helped, he's told me it helped him and it helped me too, so if I got it. So I, I got it, and, uh, uh, and I, I, all I knew about Kennedy was uh, his father thought Hitler was going to win the war, so fuck him. Uh, so I didn't know this young senator at all. But anyway, uh, the first one to choose is, is on the, on the um, House side, and a young guy, Stu Udall from Arizona, said uh, they, were, they were paid 21,000 a year themselves, so the idea of having some free talent that in theory knows about newspapers is good. So, so he said uh, that... Uh, um, he'd give me a desk in his office and he'd explain to me everything we went on and let me share everything we wanted to do and so on. So I grabbed it. And then he was, he talked about Kennedy. He said, why don't you go over there? The young guy and he's going to run for president, going to run for president. And I uh, said, I used to, I told him what I thought, the family. And he said, I thought too, but this guy is, is special, so you ought, to, you ought to think about that one. So then I went over there and worked on that side. That's how I got into policy. And that, that, so that's how it started. Yeah. yeah. And how long were you with Kennedy before the, was that while he was running for president? Yeah. Okay. So you, but when, when you showed up, he was already running for president. That's right. But he still had room to have another semi-silented player. And so then I got involved when that fellowship ran out, I got involved in something called the Democratic Study Group because the, the Democrats are so conservative, they were really run by a lot of the Southern Democrats. Mm -hmm. So there's a little separate group, the UN's, UN funded, just telling you more than you need to know, but it got me into politics and knowing those particular uh, members. So then uh, I did that until the election. Election day, I'd look around and people were trying to put other people's names on memos so they look brilliant and so on. So I said, the hell with that. So, um, so that's when I got off, got, got on a troop ship and went away. And so then, after the after the election, you said, all right, I'm done with this. Yeah, goodbye. Yeah. You you said you were, in the book, you said you were, I was a Johnny-come-lately and a Protestant. You're right. So. I'm talking about the political top. And they, uh, but so anyway, that I go back and I got stayed six months out there with the writing and then um, went to California and started working on, uh, with the university, Stanford University there on writing pretty cool thing. Proposal, grant proposal and okay. so and the phone rings and so um, and who was it this is Larry How? what was your connection to Larry O'Brien 
he ran the, um, he was a top aide on the political side for running congressional relations. So he was the president's in the White House. But how did you know him? I knew him only vaguely, vaguely, because I just knew him when I was around there as an intern. Okay. But that was well above my thing. So anyway. But he, he somehow decided that he was, because he's the guy that called you and said, hey, we need you out here? Yeah. He just remembered you? You seemed like a good guy? He didn't really remember me, but the, uh, I can tell you, slight, I'll try tight as I can. But, so the phone call rings, the phone rings, and I'm, I'm in the shower, and um, uh in, in uh, Stanford, in Palo Alto, California, and, Chris, and Mary says, uh, some guy says the White House is calling. Uh, I said, that'll be McCloskey. Hang, hang up on the prick, will you? So, uh, so she got the number, and so I went and finished my shower and so on, and, and I took care of that. She said, here's just says, would you please call? That's the White House number. So, oh, Jesus, some he's a real con or something's going on. So uh, I returned the call and they said they want me to work there. So um, I decided to take a chance and I got a free flight, space available from Palo Alto to Tennessee, Memphis, and took a bus up and uh, rented a room with the family left behind. And I got down to the northwest gate of the White House where all the offices are and not expected. I said, fuck it, my class, I'm going to kill him. But he said, no, try the, try the Northwest Gate. That's a, a gate right into the White House. Go over there. Yeah, we're expecting you, says the guard. So uh, they throw me up to uh, the uh, egg window, up to Larry O'Brien. I hadn't known him at all well. And he's in a big office with four other guys. They're his staff. I mean, he, this is his office. And he's smoking a cigar, what the hell he's doing. And he said, said introduce, we need someone to work the liberals and House members on the side, South side, on the House side of the Congress, and you know them because of the fellowship and so on. So, mm-hmm. and then he said, "Let me introduce you to." Them. So he said, "Here's um, what they're doing. Here's Claude Desotelli's inside guy taking mechanics of how well Bill is doing, and Mike Matatos, who uh, is is our is my contact, the president's contact with the Senate." And Henry Hall Wilson, we call him Molasses Mouth because he's involved with the uh, um, Southern Southern members. Mm-hmm. And Dick Dunny, who worries about the the bosses daily and Green, big city bosses. And and then Dick interrupts and says, and that leaves all those intellectual cocksuckers. They're yours. <laughs> so pretty fast start. But that's, <laughs> that's what they thought of liberal Democrats. So they hired me, and, and I got to know I knew some of them slightly through the fellowships, but then I got to know them close. And that's, that's, so that's how it started. Yeah. That's, um, right. I like this one section in here. You're working there, and you say this. My young eagle would get another challenge when I ran into General David M. Shoup, 22nd right. Commandant of the Marine Corps, on his way to a meeting of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. So I introduced myself as the only Marine on Kennedy's staff. Good, he said. And what have you done for your country lately? Yeah, he was a tough Iowa, blue-eyed Iowa, tough, tough guy, beautiful guy. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's a pretty that's a pretty aggressive statement right there. Yeah. Um, here's here's one, another kind of interesting section. One morning, I dropped into Donahue's office when he was finishing up a phone call. Here's what I heard on his on his end. I don't care who told you that. That's bullshit. Hey, do what you want. End of conversation. Dick cradled the phone, turned to me, 
and said, just because he's the president doesn't mean everyone around him is supposed to kiss his ass. <laughs> well, he works as a volunteer for, he's a small town lawyer in Stockton, California. He'd worked around Kennedy for, since 1956, never took a dime. But uh, then he came down to the White House when, um, um, speaking of Bay of Pigs and Cuba, here we go back to the book. Meanwhile, there had been rumors of a Soviet buildup in Cuba, but these had been dismissed as GOP scare tactics. Unbeknownst to me, in a dark in a dark room in this, at the CIA's National Photo Interpretation Center, located in a nondescript building at Fifth and K in Washington, my brother-in-law John John Hicks, the man who had inspired me to join the Marines and had gone from the Corps to the CIA was analyzing film from an, an American spy plane that clearly showed missiles 90 miles from our coast. The photos indicated that at least six canvas-covered missile trailers, 75 vehicles, eight small tech, tents and buildings under construction, in other words, a launch site at or near operational stage. Another image showed several more missiles. John later told me that upon realizing what he was looking at, he proceeded to smoke half a dozen cigarettes before the analysis was sent to the White House. My sister Joan never knew any of this. She preferred not to ask her husband about his work, fearful she'd talk after a couple martinis. So we got the Cuban Missile Crisis unfolding. On the 22nd, I listened to the president's speech on the eve of a possible nuclear holocaust. Like every parent in America, I thought of my family. Looking back, it's comforting to know that the man with his finger on the button had the same worries as the president's many hours of secretly recorded tapes indicate. Unlike some of the hawks advising him or their peace at any price counterparts, Kennedy had a personal experience of war that put military intervention in human terms. In a wartime letter he wrote to his father, people get so used to talking about billions of dollars and millions of soldiers that thousands of dead sounds like drops in a bucket. But if those thousands want to live as much as the 10 I saw on PT-109, they should measure their words with great, great care. By contrast, General Curtis LeMay, who advised the president and his ex-com in those tense days in October, had only known war from that great distance that, of, that the president spoke of. As a commander of bombers, LeMay had been removed by altitude from the realities of violence. LeMay told the president, we don't have any choice but military action and that he wanted to do more than take out missiles, saying that the success of an airstrike was a guarantee. In my war, I was grateful for the air support that protected Marines on the ground, but I never forgot that those pilots and generals who sent them would never have to see or smell the bodies they barbecued on the ground as we did. The South Koreans had a nickname for U.S. infantrymen, for U.S. Marine infantry. They called us ghost thieves because we were so fearsome that we stole the ghosts of the men we killed. They couldn't know how true this is. Those ghosts are still inside me. They will never leave me. Bombs away LeMay, as he was known, was perverse about his antiseptic brand of killing. He bragged about firebombing civilians in Japan during World War II. During the Korean War, he spoke of deleting cities and later complained to all who would listen that the war could have been won cleanly and quickly if he'd been allowed to firebomb the major, major cities in China. He spoke of war in terms of cost-benefit analysis and embraced nukes as the next big thing in killing, something like a microwave oven of murder, the newest, quickest, and oh-so space-age way of getting it done. There's no bottom to my content for men, for this man and those like him. When I draw my last breath, the woman and the child in the photograph, 
belonging to the North Korean I killed will be right there with the faces of my own children and the women I married. It can't be, it can't possibly be the same for a bombardier for whom taking life means traveling to a set of coordinates while seating in a cockpit, pushing a button and turning for home. Or nowadays from a computer screen in Colorado guiding a drone strike. I had a, an occasion later on in the class he was in the Congress and the, the war was, that particular war was ended. Um, McCloskey, at my urging, put in a bill to uh, forgive the, um, those persons who, for peaceful reasons, including going to Canada, opposed the Vietnam War. So uh, Pete finally, he was against that, but then we argued back and forth, and I'm his friend, he's a congressman. So um, he said, all right, I'm gonna put in a bill uh, to f forgive them, uh, provided they uh, do a, uh, a year's public service in penance. What do you think of that? And he's very proud. I said, what I think of that is, is great. As long as you put in the bill, every B-52 pilot has to also serve a year of penance. So uh, he said, you son of a bitch. So uh, he uh, filed the bill without the restriction on the first one. So we didn't have to face the second one. Oh, and I have a framed copy of the bill. And it said, from McCloskey, it said, you win, you son of a bitch, and he filed the bill in the past. Uh, well, we're talking about Kennedy, and I'm sure everyone knows where this is going. Friday, November 22nd, mm. 1963, was slow for President Kennedy's congressional relations staff. Most members had completed their Tuesday to Thursday work week and when were in their districts chasing little white balls or engaged in other vertical and horizontal endeavors. My boss, Larry O'Brien, was in Texas with President Kennedy, unlikely to call our four-man team for head counsel reports on congressional requests, demands, threats, and promises. Ahead of me was a weekend with my wife, Mary, sons, Michael and Douglas, and one Spaniel, chugging along the chilly shores of the Chesapeake in our seven-horsepower wooden outboard. Lunch in the White House mess was quiet. As I took my seat, a Filipino steward set down my oblong silver napkin ring engraved with my name, two anchors in the words White House mess. This was Washington's most exclusive eatery for privacy and tradition is run by the Navy. The mess was reserved for select members of the President's senior White House staff, and there are no guests permitted at the round table in the corner where I was seated. Just after 1.30 p.m., Jack McNally strode in. My first thought was that he must be delighted to be carrying some message from the executive office building that would gain him entry to the mess and perhaps wreck the weekend with tasks for one or, other, uh, or another of us. His usual smile was absent. The president's been shot, he whispered to us. What? No. How bad? I don't know. I ran up two flights of stairs to my office, two flights of stairs to my office, and turned on the TV. One of the millions of sets turned to the news from Dallas. I called Mary. She had just heard the first news bulletin. They've killed him, she said. No, they haven't. I got shot. I'm not dead. I hung up the phone and went down to the press office. Paul Southwick had stepped into the press slot. He didn't know any more than the AP's first bulletin. Bulletin, Dallas, November 22, AP. President Kennedy was shot just as his motorcade left downtown Dallas. Sporadic updates followed. Then the clacking of the newswire delivered the end of our world. Bulletin, Dallas, November 22nd, AP. Two priests stepped out of Parkland's, Parkland Hospital's emergency ward today and said that President Kennedy died of his bullet wounds. 
I went back upstairs and sat until dark, calling home, ignoring messages, half watching the television, chronicling the president's final flight to the Capitol. Not the new president. Not LBJ. The president. On the Sunday after the assassination, 300,000 people lined Pennsylvania Avenue to watch six white horses pull a Cassion bearing the president's flag draped casket from the White House to the Capitol Rotunda where he would lie in state. It was the same Cassian that had carried FDR and the unknown soldier. There was a haunting photograph of the first family following the casket up the Capitol steps. In the photo, the widow Jacqueline is looking directly at the camera. A black mantilla on her head, a wisp of hair between her eyes. She is shouldering the despair of the whole country with the same poise that defined her public image as First Lady. Beside, beside her, JFK Jr. is bounding up the stairs with his tongue out, too young to fathom what has happened, you hope. Caroline's white-gloved hand is holding her mother's in black, a little girl facing the unimaginable and an unfair duty of publicly mourning her dad. In the foreground of this tableau of grief is the back of Kenny O'Donnell's head. He's looking off to the side out of the frame at the box containing our president. Kenny had been in the car behind Kennedy's in Dallas and blessed himself when he saw a chunk of the president's brain blown out of his skull. Opposite Kenny, I am standing on a step, facing the camera over, just over Jackie's shoulder, with my hand over my heart, watching the first family climbing the stairs. Just a few feet from the family of a slain president I had observed, a job that started with what I had assumed was a prank phone call less than two thousand, less than a thousand days earlier. A closer look at the man on the step with his hand on his heart will reveal some clues to where I came from. In an age of slick side parts, my hair is cropped short, the mark of a Marine who didn't know what to do with the freedom to grow it out. I wear a tiny lapel pin, the red, white, and blue vertical stripes of the Silver Star, which I had received 12 years earlier for my actions as a rifle platoon leader on the other side of the world. Behind the sad eyes, taking in the first family, I am carrying my persistent anguish over the things I did to earn that medal. I remain baffled that I'm even alive in my 30s. It seems as unlikely as our president being dead at 46. In the coming months, I stayed on, with, stayed on staff with President Johnson. I tried to console Mary's and Mary and the boys. I pushed papers around my desk in an office that had lost its former feeling of purpose. I remembered what it had been like not wanting my time in the White House to end. As I planned what I was going to do next, I would watch the clock every afternoon, something I had never done while the president was alive. My last day couldn't come soon enough. In his inaugural address, President Kennedy had challenged, president Kennedy had challenged my generation to ask, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. Walking away from the White House, I asked myself the hardest question yet. What can I do for my country now? So, I mean, obviously this is just a radical change in the work environment, to say the least, and you you make that pretty clear. Yeah, but the... Um I think that Johnson, unlike the situation when uh, FDR died, 
he, um, FDR fired everybody in the staff right away. But th that's understandable. I mean, Truman did. Mm -hmm. Truman had never been allowed in the White House when he was vice president. Never, not once. So uh, there was, he was treated as a contempt in Missouri Paul and so on. It turned out to be quite a good man. But he didn't need any more, didn't need that staff anymore, and didn't want any of them. Mm -hmm. Johnson, on the other hand, to his credit, uh, realized he walked into a, a tragic situation and some, idea, some degree of stability was important. And uh, what his own personal views were, I don't know, but, the, uh, but I think they were genuine, that he felt retaining the uh, staff, particularly people like the congressional staff, was, was very important to try to, as we ease into whoever, wherever the future lies. And uh, that, I think that was important. Now, he, he, he did it his way, which was um, embrace us, uh, but still treat the rest of his staff as he'd always treated them. Uh, he would curse them, and, and uh, they were devoted to him. They realized he was very, had been a wonderful, wonderfully effective uh, Senate leader and so on, but they were what they were mm -hmm. in his mind. And so that he, he paid extraordinary efforts to, uh, to keep the staff intact, and with the exception of Kenny O'Donnell, who was, he can't handle it, but he very soon, well, he, he, he just was his own man there. He stayed there, and, and uh, you know, the president called a meeting with the whole staff right after he got the job, within a week after that. And so, in, so we assembled as, as, as required, requested, or whatever. Someone said, uh, or so he said, where's Kenny? He said, he's at another meeting. And it's the way he should have had his ass fired, but that's, you know, his, Kenny was Kenny. One tough cookie. So anyway, you know, I, I should have asked you this before because everyone, you know, you hear about you hear about JFK and and a sort of mythical le level of leadership and charisma. I mean, what was it like being around him? Someone who's a great leader with with charisma. I mean, that's <laughs> but that's that's a shallow way to put it. But mm -hmm. also, I can recite instances where he was intensely human. Um, where, uh, as evidenced by his handling of LeMay, LeMay's thing to him in that, in that meeting about the Cuban Missile thing, LeMay was saying, you know, you can't be a coward, you can't. He really was a grossly insulting uh, thing, and he, he just managed, managed that. Um, Didn't let his ego get involved at all, wouldn't play with this guy's games, LeMay. I mean, yeah. I, I could see a guy like, like LeMay, the way you describe him, okay, I'm going to make JFK. Like, you can't be weak here, you know, it's trying exactly, to hit him from that angle. He's almost telling him exactly he's saying you. Yeah. And uh, uh, that, you know, you, you can't live with this. I mean, uh, the next thing to an open threat, mm -hmm. and the, the records of that now indicate Kennedy said exactly what that, amount, that amounted to. And he said, what did you say? And so... Uh, Bomber LeMay said it somewhat differently. But <laughs> Got yeah. it. Yeah, that's in the book. I didn't Is quite capture that. Yeah. We might need to clean that one up a little bit. But yeah, yeah, that's... that's. And I think that there are instances of very human things. When he um, put it to him, a guy, a member of Congress, died in a plane crash, and the usual 
trying to campaign in foggy weather. The guy had held a, a, seat, a seat in the Congress. It had been Republican since 1928. It was the one the Golden Gate Bridge runs up to Oregon. And uh, he, he, he won a seat in the Congress because he just devoted to the coastline there and protecting the coast, and et cetera, et cetera. So we get in. So then he's campaigning and bang. So uh, then uh, the only way he could hold that seat would be um, if his wife held it, ran and held it. And the problem was that uh, it had been turned down. She, it meant that Clem always thought very poorly of automatically some passing on to the widow. Mm-hmm. She, she was against it, and, and she was very much aware of that. She had very young children, et cetera, et cetera. So I tried to peddle her the idea that it's the only way we hold that seat if we run. So uh, then in due course, I uh, was talking with, with Kenny or Larry, I forgot which, Kenny, I think, but I said the only way it's going to work, if at all, is if the president calls her. And uh, so he said, why don't you go and tell him? So I recited to the president exactly the situation that he's wonderfully wonderful man. And he got a he was given a house in Rock Creek Park, a humble stone house because he loved Rock Creek Park so much, and he's such a huge decent guy. But uh, he just doesn't want to do it. So I went and recited all that to the president, and uh, and including other pieces of major, and he's the only one. And I uh, said, so there's the little kids and so on. He said, uh, there goes that seat. He would not make a call. Mm-hmm. He, thought it, he just couldn't do it. And there wasn't, wasn't fear of failure, just he wouldn't do it. Mm-hmm. There's a lot inside him, it's pretty damn good. Well, so you eventually have had enough of working for LBJ, right. and again, you don't, know, Jumping through huge swaths of this. Yeah, Christine found a few. I started making notes about Johnson because I thought he was really cuckoo, and that's the wrong word. But but he was he was so upset by never having served in the military, and 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 uh, he used to drive me bullshit. And I didn't wear that silver star in those days very often. I. We were discussing some bill, and he was he was being his bully boy stuff. That word I knew it was a scene that day, so I uh, I wore more mine, and you could tell he knew I knew he was a fake. And it was a fake medal, really a fake medal. It's in the book mm-hmm. we got it. But that wasn't all of it. It was just I started keeping track of him. And I never made any notes when I worked in the White House before, but I had done started doing that, and then I put. I put that away, and, and I, I used to write four by six cards to myself each day, uh, most days, not each day, about individuals attending meetings. It's a very sensitive stuff. So I decided to hell with it. So then I started scribbling this thing, and then one day, this nosy Christine comes in, and she's got a box. I said, what I found in the basement? She, I had put those away. I thought I'd thrown them away. She found them, and she started reading <laughs> to tell it into myself. She said, Jesus. So that's where we are on that project. Your next move, so your next move after LBJ is, um, in the mystic figuring out where I'll go next, I got an unexpected visit from Edward H. Levi, provost of the University of Chicago. Levi, yeah. Who is one of those intellectual cocksuckers I'd been assigned to as a new hire in the West Wing a lifetime ago. He's a gentle. 
<laughs> he never used the word shit if he had a mouthful. And they say he's just a, a terrific leader, and and he really during the times of scandal, he he, he was so good at balance handling, uh, student uprising, and so on, without getting the Chicago police in, and that, a vital difference uh, to what alternative might have been. And, and, and so, so he offers you a job though at the yeah at vice the university, president yeah at so vice I president get out of there, and then I just through that. Uh, he became um, attorney general because he just handled the whole thing so well. Yeah, there was. This is There's this is what like 19, 1964, uh, 1964. The campuses are starting to get riled up and all that. That's what you're dealing with. Yeah, but this this one was uh, he 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 were, he didn't hire me for that. It was a little before that. It was right after the death and so on, or within soon I get out of there. But he um, handled the Chicago police very well. He did a lot of st stuff of that nature, and I started a political science thing. His problem was that the uh, University of Chicago's view is a bed of communism, mm -hmm. far out, and so on. So I started bringing congressmen in, like Rostenkowski or these other rough guys who weren't uh, involved with the university. But, that changed a lot there, and that, that was interesting, exciting. And eventually, you end up working for Bobby Kennedy's campaign. Yeah, well, I, the deal was with with, uh, with Levy. He, he's a pretty Machiavellian guy, and he wanted me. Yeah, you. Flew, this is uh, going back to the book on the on the Kennedy on the Bobby Kennedy campaign. When I flew to Los Angeles in early June right. 1968, I was full of hope. Bobby made us all hopeful again. By June, Pierre was working on Bobby's campaign after having already lost his own race. He invited us out for what we hoped would be a victory pri party following a ca California primary. Right. We checked into the Ambassador Hotel. We wandered around the sprawl of the hotel, napped a while in the room, and watched the early projections, which looked encouraging. The polls closed. I called Bobby's room. It looks like you're a winner. You should give the mayor a call. The mayor being daily. Yeah. It's getting late in Chicago. Tell him. Tell him and tell Rostenkowski, 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 that California's Herbert's Hubert's end of the line. Hubert Humphreys. Kenny's at the Mayflower. I'll give him a call. It's very close. What if I don't win? Without California, you're dead anyways. So why not make the call? Okay, see you later. Mary and I went downstairs to wait outside the crowded ballroom where Bobby delivered his speech. Maybe he decided not to place the call because he didn't have time before his speech. Maybe he was unsure. Maybe he wanted. Kenny to first push Rostenkowski, the mayor's main man in Chicago, for support. Maybe he wanted to call the mayor himself in the morning. How many maybes that night? Maybe if not through the kitchen. He closed his speech with a rallying cry. So my thanks to all of you and on to Chicago, and let's win there. The senator from New York ducked the crowd by exiting through the kitchen. The night split open with rapid and unmistakable pop, pop, pop of a small caliber weapon. I ran towards the shots. I would learn later that Mary had gone upstairs and sat with the TV switched off. She knew. Paul Schrade? Schrade. Schrade, Bobby's pal from the United Auto Workers, was on the floor, bleeding from a head wound, eyes open, looking dead. Just beyond, Bobby was on his back with a crowd surging around him. Some of us tried to make a protective ring to give him air. I looked down at Bobby lying on his back. He was motionless, his mouth slightly open. There was almost no blood except on the back of one hand. 
No visible entry or exit wounds. His eyes had that stare that I'd seen before, but never from anyone who survived. I saw Jim Abels. I saw Rocky. Rocky had mumbled Corman. Abels had said, oh shit. Just shit. I shouted to Fred Dutton, who was inside the barrier. Somebody loosen his tie. I remember hoping for a miracle, but I knew head wounds and miracles don't mix. And here you are on the uh, on the funeral train. It was hot on board the funeral train. We ran out of ice somewhere in New Jersey on the way to the capital by way of Delaware and Maryland. So we drank our whiskeys neat. As we passed through uh, New Jersey, I don't know if it's in there or not, we, uh, the crowd, in fact, one person was killed right along both sides of the track and they eventually stopped other, other trains and we were doing a very slow pace. And I looked across the crowd, really, there were narrow crowds, not mobs at all, but right along the track. And off in the distance, I saw some uh, people playing golf, before some playing golf. I said to Kenny, we were in New Jersey. I said to Kenny, look at those sons of bitches still playing golf. Kenny says, don't worry about it. This is New Jersey, you said. Whether they know it or not, they all voted for Kennedy. So uh, <laughs> took some heart there and went back to the whiskey. Uh, you continue on describing this. We moved through backyards, dirty embankments, discarded railroad ties, bottles and trash, and a corridor of humanity beside the tracks on porches, balconies, and rooftops. They made signs of prayer. They saluted. They waved. The economist John Kenneth Galbraith remembers, if you were burying Ronald Reagan, you would obviously want to do it with an airplane. But if you're going to bury Robert Kennedy, his people live along the railway tracks. In the last car, with the family, friends, and coffin, I heard Ethel say to her son, wave back, Joe. On that, in that book, I had a piece of uh, Frank Mankiewicz, the press secretary to uh, Bobby, and uh, he described the, the funeral train, and uh, he said, uh, the crowd in the train, he analyzed it, he said, uh, the, uh, uh, I can't read verbatim, but roughly it says uh, the uh, Protestants uh, fed their gloomy, the uh, Jews rending their clothes apart, uh, the Irish drank a lot of whiskey uh, until the ice ran out and then drank it, continued drinking without ice. And it was a good little piece of, and how, he above all, he was one of later on announced Bobby's death into the crowd. He was in a hospital where we were. But uh, for him to write that and, and analyze that crowd, it was terrific. And you get on that half-assed train. This is a, another good political story that you got in here. In 1967, Pete ran for Congress against former child actress Shirley Temple in the Republican primary right. for special election following the death of Arthur J. Younger. By then, the Vietnam War was on, and Pete aimed to be the first Republican con congressman to oppose the war. Between this unpopular stance and his opponent's celebrity, everyone assumed his was a lost cause. Things weren't looking good, so I was recruited to fly out from Chicago to deliver the word to Pete that he was going to lose and should stop wasting his contributors' donations for a certain loss. Pete's, Pete, and this is you talking, Pete, they're saying 85% 80, of the people in this district know who Temple is. Not even 85% of them knew who Jesus Christ is. He said, Burger, and that was his nickname for you for, uh, from your middle name. If 85% of the people know anything about her, that bitch is dead. 
That'd be true. Things started to look up when his opponent, when his opponent, Little Miss Miracle, the star of the Depression, accused of him of being soft on communism. That got the attention of a few old Marines. She was talking about the recipient of a Navy Cross. I brought this issue to the attention of David Shoup, the former Commandant of the Marine Corps, whom I knew from the West Wing where he had asked me, what have you done for your country lately? He was appalled by the child actress's accusation. At my suggestion, he sent a telegram endorsing Pete, saying that when elected, Pete would serve the people of the 11th District of California with the same grace and courage that he had served his country in Korea. That letter appeared the day before the election. That last minute piece was printed in the Palo Alto paper. Pete won his election, a victory that became known as the sinking of the good ship Lollipop. (laughs) That was a heartbreaker. (laughs) And Pete had saved the Marine Reserve through the 1950s and early 60s. He would make lieutenant colonel by the time Vietnam was on, but they didn't need any aged reserve lieutenant colonels, much less one who was anti-war. So he was out, but Pete wasn't one to stay away from war, especially one he wanted to shut down for a change. He put together a privately funded trip, so he's gonna go to Vietnam. And then I told Pete I had a strong hunch there'd be an accident over there. A Jeep would roll over, a chopper would go down, something taking the peacenik Republican from California permanently out of the debate. So I told him, I'm coming with you. Pete went to Vietnam in 1968 between Christmas and his swearing in as a congressman. I tagged along on a second trip in 1971. By then, anti-war sentiment had grown following Nixon's bombing and the invasion of neutral Cambodia. Yet the Republican Party line was still pro-war. And then, so you guys go to Vietnam. It was a disturbing trip, to put it mildly. We were lied to constantly. When Pete met with the American ambassador, Sullivan, he got a chance to tell him, I think you're a liar. We went to My Lai, where Lieutenant Callie had carried out his infamous massacre three years prior. The survivors were less than welcoming. I was nervous and became acutely so when I noticed that Dominus, who's Dominus? He's a life photographer. He had wandered off. That was a real no-no because the area was unsafe and it just didn't feel right. I found him behind a hut where the man who had covered numerous wars and had privately, had privately gone to weep, overcome by all his eyes had seen. Wandering around one of our bases, I went into a big tent, a big tent housing a bar of sorts. The place was full of Marines and had an atmosphere of tension I knew well. I started chatting with a pilot. I told him I was a busted out platoon leader traveling with a fellow Korean war vet and trying to see what was going on over here. He shouted to no one in particular, hey, watch out, this is one of those guys they warned us about. Well, fuck you, I said. No, hey, relax, pal. You wanna know what I do? I fly the Arvin, which is the Army of the Republic of Vietnam, our allies, officers home overnight and fly them back in the morning. You leave the enlisted guys? I asked him. I tried to imagine a world in which Pete and I got to chopper off the battlefield every night with <laughs> other gentlemen officers, leaving the enlisted swine to fend for themselves and hope they're still there when we punch in and again in the morning. What the fuck? That's all right. That That's right. He said, anyone who thinks we can win this war is out of his fucking mind. That pilot uh, and the other pilots there wore um, on his arms and legs quick-release tourniquets so that, uh, um, and they sat on a piece of armor plate so that if they were shot down and lost a limb or, uh, or, or, a, a limb or one or another, uh, they could just yank that uh, tourniquet and it would, it would apply. So that was a kind of explaining their conduct here on that squad tent. Mm-hmm. 
and, and you look at them and you don't you know very well what they're the tunics are there for. You have to find how disgusted, disgusted they must have felt doing their own thing, which is not fun, but to uh, bail out on, uh, say you did that to your crew uh, playing on that. It's uh, it's absurd, I and mean, we, we ate that shit for all those years and wasted all those bodies. Man, not bodies, Marines, not just Marines. Um, it's crazy. Yeah. Just crazy. You move forward. Good. Since Korea, Mary, the peaceful, your wife Mary, the peaceful Canadian, had lost whatever enthusiasm she had for her husband's violent adapt, adoptive home. JFK's murder confirmed her low opinion, and Bobby was the last straw. Chicago wasn't the place to be in the doldrums that followed, and so we sought refuge in Ireland. We found Bantry, a year-round market town on the shores of an immense, gorgeous bay, open to the gales and waves of the North Atlantic. So you guys find a house for sale. You end up buying that house out there and um, kind of sp- ended up spending a decent amount of time over in Ireland. Three months a year. With, d- during the uh, academic season? Yeah, I didn't take any jobs without that, that three months from that point on. And, uh, and then the, the uh, University of Chicago, you kind of wrap up your job there. Five years. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, then you get a call. Then you get another phone call. You, you, you get a lot of interesting phone calls. Here this phone call comes in. Chuck Daly, this is Derek Bach. You may have heard that I was recently made president at Harvard. I'm calling you. I'm calling to ask, have you ever thought of working here? Not in my sickest fucking moment <laughs> is your response. Really, why not? Because I don't think Harvard cares about anything but Harvard. Well, um, he was looking to hire you, and because of your boredom and restlessness, it made you an easy mark, is what you say. So you go end up going to work there. I told him I'd do it for five years, five to the day I quit. <laughs> oh, he said, he said, what do you want to be at the other five years? I said, I know exactly what I'm going to be five years, what I am today, my own fucking man, but I'm five years I'm gone, and I was gone to, to the day. <laughs> Once at a tailgate for a Harvard-Yale football game, I was asked about my allegiance as a Yale graduate working for Harvard. I was quoted saying something like this, you'd have more fun getting a girl in a hotel room and watching Ohio State on television. That's true. <laughs> because that, unfortunately, Harvard and Crimson ran there. <laughs> you said unfortunately they ran it? Yeah. No, that's, that's, that's awesome. Yeah. Uh, when I left Harvard after my fifth year, I was given a rocking chair embossed with a Harvard logo, my name and title, and the years of my service, and an inscription in Irish, which translates to, he left as he came, his own man. In 1977, I've been living, off, living in Key West in Ireland, taking some time off. I was invited by Jack Anderson to go to Chicago to discuss a job opening as president of the Joyce Foundation, a fully funded grant-making charitable organization. So this is your next gig. You say this, at the Joyce Foundation, I broke my own rule about not staying in any job longer than five years. I once told a nonprofit trade publication, any foundation president who stays longer than 10 years ought to be shot. The interviewer called me on this. What about you? And you responded, I have been shot. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I saw that limo off just in time. <laughs> uh, Continuing on, through the 1980s, I was dividing my time between the Joyce Foundation and the American Ireland Fund. It, 
it was as close to retirement as I was comfortable with, and my schedule made it possible to spend more time in Bantry. By then, Michael and Betsy Claffey bought a home house in, I'm not even gonna try Kilcaran. Kilcaran, over a treacherous mountain road from us. We had dinners and long sunlit summer nights looking out on the water. Then our world changed. Mary found a lump in her breast, cancer. She had it treated, it came back and spread. By 1987, it was clear that further treatment was hopeless. We celebrated my 60th birthday at our Cape House where a local builder, Scott Svensson, who knew the situation had built a deck for her to watch the sunset from, working quickly, ignoring the local building laws. Mary wanted to die in Ireland. We went to Bantry while she was still well enough to travel. I did my best with cooking and cleaning, but I couldn't carry her because of my arm. A local doctor made house calls and confirmed what we already knew. No hope. We spent our last moments together in bed. She was thirsty but couldn't swallow. I wet her lips to ease the dryness. Can I have a patty? She asked, slaying for whiskey. I went to the kitchen, poured the whiskey, and brought the glasses to bed, drank some, and bent over to let a last few drops dribble from my kiss into her mouth. June 16, 1987, early light glinted off the water. Hungry Hill across the bay was purple in the calm pallet of dawn. Our little inboard cabin cruiser, the Titanic II, tugged at its mooring. In the bedroom, Mary was asleep and breathing very slowly. I lay beside her. Her breathing got slower and slower. Her breathing stopped. I kissed her. I didn't want to leave her. The doctor came. The nurse came. And then the hearse. Then I was alone. Toward the evening, the tide was out. I went down to the beach. My pistol was an ocean away. Fuck it. I begged God to finish the job. That I was still here was the only thing crueler than her being gone. I knelt in the wet sand and prayed as hard as I ever prayed. For Mary's life, one of the few times I've ever prayed. Please, God. Give me cancer. You never listened to me, my God. How long? How long had you two been together for? Thirty years. A few months after the funeral, Dick called me and asked me what my plan was. He told me that he had a job opening for me in the event I was interested in doing something besides looking after donkeys, killing rats, and feeling sorry for myself. He told me it was a federal government job at the John Fitzgerald Kennedy Presidential Library. A nod from an old pal wouldn't suffice, but my service in medals and prior federal employment, including my time in Kennedy's own West Wing, would make me well qualified. I got the job, flew to Boston, and at age 60, started a whole new career. Seems like a 
a good who's that that was dick who Donnie who okay it's like a good friend to call you out and 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 get you on a new mission yeah he was good he came to the funeral so uh, he's he's uh, got 11 kids he's one I worked with in the White House he called his wife the careless Protestant but anyway he he was there and he said uh, and we had it I didn't go to church but Protestant church had the funeral was kind of had a congregation of probably 20 or I don't know how many but it was so poor in a beautiful little building downtown the roof needed repairs so uh Dick observed that when he was he came up for the funeral, and um, the Catholic Church is up on the top of the hill, and, and in those days, still a huge number of persons go to church. They're all in the Catholic Church, so uh, Dick observed that. He said you're pretty separate. I said, Dick, you won't believe me, but the uh, Catholic Church takes you know church gate collections for worthy causes. They had a special church gate collection for. Uh, to, for money to send down the hill to repair the the Catholic the Protestant Church, Dick says no way. I said yeah they did. So um, and not long after the funeral letter came, the, the preacher down below called me and said I've got a letter I want to show you. Got the letter from uh, Dunny Hu, and it said here's a check for I think fifteen hundred dollars to uh, help fix the. Uh, help fix your roof, but not for what goes on under, under underneath it. <laughs> That's vintage Donahue. <laughs> anyway, it's... Uh, once you're back, now you're, you're, you're doing the library thing, and, and this is... Now, you had met Christine before in, yeah, in, in the past. Worked. Tip O'Neill's a friend of mine. She, she worked 12 years for the appointment secretary to, uh, to Tip, uh, Speaker of the House, and so mm-hmm. on. She's in charge of the Title IX was a women's issues mm-hmm. thing, and she's just, she was extraordinary. She's a very, very difficult person because I don't care who you were, you couldn't get to see her unless, uh, you know, I, I listened to once that they had, that is Julie funeral. She probably usually the short of film of her out of, wasn't it out of a news story? The Italian ambassador or whoever that was wanted to see Tip. She said, let me check. She said, and by the time he found out that he's to get an appointment the two years from next Wednesday or something like that, she, she was impossible. <laughs> well, since since Mary had died and now you were back, you had Christine, and I'm going back to the book. Around New Year's, I took Christine to dinner at a French restaurant on the Cape to say goodbye. I didn't know how to get over losing Mary. She needed to move on for a couple of months. We didn't talk. That was devastating to both of us. She loved me for a decade, knowing it would never be possible to be together. Now that it was possible, I was too broken. Finally, I realized I couldn't live without Christine. On the dock of my Cape Cod house, I asked her to marry me. We went for a seafood lunch to celebrate. We set a date for Columbus Day in the fall. There was just one issue. She was a Catholic, and I'm, at least in theory, a Protestant. The first hurdle was visiting her parents on Presentation Road in Brighton. 16, 16 Presentation Road. She told me that I would be the first Protestant to set foot on their porch. The house their mother was born in. Not even the mailman, I asked. You think a Protestant could get a job as a mailman in this neighborhood, she responded. With her parents' very warm blessing, we just had the church to worry about. 
per Catholic law, I had to sign some papers saying I'd raise our children in the church. That was okay, but on top of that, the priest wanted me to go to an adult version of Sunday school. That wasn't gonna happen. Fortunately, I had an answer. I knew Father Richard McHugh in Korea, where he had been a Marine Lieutenant. He had been blown up by a landmine. We saw each other again as guests of Bethesda Naval Hospital. When I left the hospital, I was he was still undergoing treatment. After the Navy put him back together, McHugh had a spiritual awakening and had become a Navy chaplain and went on to serve in Vietnam. I knew he had He's retired. A Navy chaplain, yeah. I knew he had retired and was living in North Carolina. I called him to explain my situation. And he said, I look forward to seeing you on your knees in front of a Catholic altar. Father slash Lieutenant McHugh married us at Our Lady of the Presentation in Brighton in front of our many friends and from the many chapters in our lives. And then a week after my 62nd birthday, Christine was due to give birth to our first son. I thought about giving him, naming him Ulick. Is that how you say it? Ulick or Ulick? Ulick. Ulick. Ulick, after my father. Something our friends had talked to me about over a drink. We would name him Charlie, not just after me, but for the two uncles I never met who had been killed leading platoons in France. One thing about back then when Christine first came down to Key West after Mary had died, there's a wonderful piano player there who plays around the world on cruise and all that stuff. He's based in, he and his partner live in Key West. So the, the day that Christine walked in, uh, he played uh, Love Walked In and Drove the Shadows Away. <laughs> Jesus, that was great. <laughs> so, some, but you know, the trouble is, she's the most wonderful person I've ever met and the best wife I've ever had, and I don't have to have any more. But uh, she can be really difficult because uh, the guy played that in a place up in, um, in Ireland, played that, and I love that song. She goes over. Next thing I hear is, love is better the second time around. <laughs> <laughs> I said, did I prick you play that again? He said, I, 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 I'm afraid of Mr. Daly more than I am of you. <laughs> uh, um, it was better. But it didn't have to be difficult. <laughs> Christ, he was, he was your son. The, um, you continued over some of this. Um, you got involved with other other things, and one of the things you, I mentioned it really briefly, but the Ireland Fund, here we go, through our work together in the Ireland Fund, Tony O'Reilly and I built a lasting and trusting friendship. His rugby interested me just as much as the Marine Corps interested him. He was a famous rugby player. And in 1999, Tony invited me to join him in Cape Town where he was meeting with his South African advisory board. He was the richest guy in Ireland at that time. Went bust later, but he uh, had like 75 newspapers around the world and um, based in Ireland. And he got me on that general board. But uh, he got, partly because he went down to play 100,000 people all white uh, at age 18, rugby and, and uh, South Africa, and he really fell in love, in love with the place. Mm -hmm. So he asked me to come down. The board would have an annual lunch with Nelson Mandela. When I met him, he remembered his visit to the Kennedy Library shortly after being given his freedom. At my first meeting with him in South Africa, he noticed my PT-109 tie clip, a souvenir from the Kennedy White House. 
He asked if he could have it. Here it is, I said, but what are you going to do with it? You don't wear a tie. He clamped the miniature brass boat to his tunic. Mandela's presence can best be described as a staggering and powerful gentleness. What's truly remarkable about this man is the way he, the way his example inspired others to actualize courage and patience in the face of a system that told them they had no dignity and honor to preserve. I think that the one thing I hope you consider putting in, it, in this thing is why I got interested in, in South Africa other than the idea of being invited to the most beautiful city in Africa and the richest city in Africa, Cape Town. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did that because uh, O'Reilly was sensitive to how he did Bobby going down there and so on. He knew I was interested in that. And, and uh, so he asked us to come down on a holiday just to come see. I'd never been to South Africa. So we flew down in first class, of course, and on his nickel. And uh, as we flew into the airport, we noticed this big sea of, looked like a bunch of shacks. And uh, so then we landed and drove back into, South, into Cape Town. I looked at the shacks, and they were, they were really shacks, and no windows, anything like that, and, and uh, some tin roof bits and pieces they found by the street or whatever. Uh, there were hundreds of thousands of people, unbelievable, lived, lived there. So uh, we got into the city before I met with O'Reilly for, to sit down for a while. Uh, he said, just mess around a while and then let's, let's have a lunch and so on. So I went back out there and it was, it was unbelievable. I mean, they just, uh, it was, uh, I went out and with one of his drivers and obviously an armed white policeman. And so uh, he dropped me off and there was a little clinic there. And I walked in and this Eric Gomer was, a, I asked who that guy is and he told me this. And, Eric Gomer, that's a, the he, doctor that worked yeah. there. So uh, he said, I said, I'd like to walk around there. And I said, to have someone from the clinic come, we won't have any problem. So I went around and looked at it, and it was just un- unbelievable. We talked about that, and I learned, found this um, situation specific to such charming things as the uh, Minister of Health believed that if it took um, lemon juice, and I forgot the exact formula, and uh, garlic and something else, you didn't need to worry about AIDS. And she's, she's the Surgeon General of, of uh, this, that the idea of bringing medicine in was illegal, you could lose your license, the, uh, it was absurd. So this is 1998 when this is happening, and yeah. you know, I know you, you you went into that little village. Obviously, you saw the suffering that was going on there. The little village you, had 850,000 people in y- it. Yeah, I should have said giant well, village. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Um, the, uh, and, then, and then you start, you get put in charge of the AIDS Well, I, I said to Tony that this dream, and it was a beautiful, beautiful place. Forgetting Robin Island, the prison out in the middle. But, um, and I described to him exactly what, how beautiful I acknowledged all of that. Uh, but it's also during apartheid they had all of the blacks out I mean out so so it's all white there now but uh, the, the thing was, was murderous and uh, and we've done nothing about it so when uh, um, I described in some detail and he later said he went to a place that he would never go and never did go but uh, nor did anyone else in the, in the South African employee 
but anyway, when the, um, yeah, you know, you, you 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 end up giving these reports to this board, and here in here you say in my reports I would follow up with statistics about South Africa's AIDS orphans, 850,000 in number as of 2006, and urge anyone who finds boner jokes offensive to consider the obscenity of that number. I swore a lot during board meetings, even by my standards. Some members of the board didn't appreciate my obscene language. I tell them it's an obscene fucking world. Real obscenity is drinking mineral water and vintage wines in a palatial hotel guarded by armed security just 30 minute drive from a city of tin shacks where little girls are afraid to use the toilet. I explained to them that that the the legend was you uh, can cure AIDS if you have sex with with a virgin. And they were a widespread practice of, of raping very young girls uh, in some cases killing him but uh, one was defended by someone who said that, that wasn't a crime because she wasn't a virgin age five and I said this is the shit that, that we're putting up with since we met yesterday afternoon to now 600 South Africans mostly women and children have died of, of AIDS and we don't do shit about it and uh, I described some of the the deaths including one uh, who had, had described in a previous session, uh, brave and smart and young and so on. And uh, she was raped uh, the previous week by, turned out, 15 young guys. One, one is 15 years of age. And when she screamed out that stop, that, that uh, she had AIDS, they killed her. And uh, that's the one the other volunteers kept going. And... Uh, so I, he made me the, that advisor, and, and uh, we funded what we could do. We changed our editorial boards. Employees included blacks. We had condoms in uh, in our workplaces. Uh, one priest had said to me, uh, the, "Our pope would tell you that condoms are evil," and uh, he talked as if raincoats raincoats cause rain but I mean they're fucking nuts everybody so uh, as bluntly as I possibly could as vividly as I possibly could um, we did help that that change and and Gomez was uh, in um, what's the main city Johannesburg uh, they pulled the guy's license for that and they threatened and three times ordered the uh, medical practice of his clinic in Kalecha, um pulled, and he wouldn't do it. And he said to me, uh, you know, it just, it takes nothing to buy a bullet to put in a man's head. Uh, and somehow, because the instinct spread, what a great thing he was doing. I mean, he had a white Supreme Court justice of uh, South Africa, and an uh, extraordinary liberal guy, he got AIDS probably from homosexual, I don't know, but I knew him and he, um, so he came out and said, I have AIDS. And he said, I'm alive because I have the 400 rands or whatever it was a month to buy uh, AIDS and get them overseas to, to delay or not cure, I guess more or less cure something called heart. And he said, uh, I know uh, people who, who die 
because I have money and they don't. And he said, uh, I'm alive, but he said, I'm ashamed that I'm alive. It's just a fucking mess. And I thought, the more you can spell that out and the more you can shame these guys, the goddamn uh, president of the country, and Becky, uh, said, uh, he did have sex with a woman, it's alleged rape or not, but he didn't have any problem because he'd taken a shower afterwards. It's the president of the fucking country. And they get, uh, as the Times later said, looking back on his, on his years in service, when he was in office, if he, had, if he had just permitted treatment and so on, 350,000 South Africans would still be alive. And that's the New York Times and editorial. And that we just were sitting there. Anyway, that's, that's what motivated me there. This is how you describe it in the book. It was hard to comprehend the magnitude of the suffering there. It's hard to imagine a place where going to the toilet can be fatal, a place where there's roughly one flush toilet for every 17,000 people. A place that is largely ignored by those with the power to improve those conditions. In the absence of government leadership on the AIDS issue, rumor and superstition has taken over. One rumor said that condoms had worms in them. A sitting president of South Africa endorsed the rumor that post-coital shower could prevent AIDS. The Minister of Health went on to went to the World's Aid Conference promoting the rumor that garlic and lemon juice were effective treatments and that heart, which is highly active anti-retroviral treatment, was more dangerous than AIDS. But the worst rumor of all, the one that once again made me pause to choke back tears at the podium delivering another report, was the rumor that sex with a virgin could cure AIDS. This had sparked an epidemic of infant rape. Researching my report, I sat down with a member of one family whose baby was essentially brain dead following a gang rape. There were instances of four and five-year-olds who'd already been raped many times. In at least one case, the rapist of a five-year-old was let off the gr on the grounds that his victim was not a virgin. See, that's an illustration of why I get carried away like we just did, that you looking at that, analyzing it, and and reading it is better than my getting so disturbed. I can, I'm almost incoherent. So I, I appreciate very much, I'm not kidding you, that you've taken the time to, to read that, and I wish I'd listen to your questions and try to respond more oh. rationally. Well, it's this is the kind of thing that can make you think irrationally. And, and here's what you say in here. I don't think any, anything can prepare someone to understand that kind of suffering. I don't think that kind of suffering can be understood. Some of my family and friends saw a straight line between war and my field work in South Africa. Perhaps I was continuing my search for a sense of purpose and mission, seeking once again the company of people who live heroically. Maybe. But, but AIDS in South Africa was death, pointless agony and cruelty like nothing I'd ever seen. These people weren't combatants. They were simply victims of an unlucky birth, even more unlucky than the, civilians, than the civilian victims of war. I found their pain to be overwhelming. War may have prepared me to witness such pain without looking away, but nothing could have prepared me to understand it. I was 72 years old when I started going to South Africa, and I turned 80 shortly after my final trip. More than once I was asked, what were you thinking? Why did I take up field work and reporting in a dangerous place when I could have been golfing and napping? Maybe I had one more battle in me. 
Maybe I just don't know how to stay out of it when I see suffering. On a personal level, I knew that it felt better to observe, to be somewhere I could work with brave and dedicated whom I admired the way I had admired Gunnar Dosey and Kenny O'Donnell and finally Dr. Eric Gomer. And these are the, Dr. Eric Gomer is that one that you, you were describing. Mm. And then we get here. In the middle of delivering one of my final AIDS reports, I started mumbling. That was nothing new. I mumble all the time. And we may get some confirmations of that. <laughs> As my fellow board member, Lady Margaret J. remembers, I'd have liked to have understood more of what he said because it all seemed interesting. The problem was that day, I don't remember mumbling. I don't remember halting my report mid-sentence. I don't remember returning to my seat at the board table. After several minutes I can't account for, I asked David Dinkins, who was sitting next to me, what had happened. You just stopped, he said. Are you okay? I think so, I told him. After the meeting, I contacted Margaret J's husband, Dr. Michael Adler. He surmised that I had a minor stroke, the good kind of stroke if there is such a thing. He told me to get to a hospital right away. I found all this more than a little upsetting. I wanted to get back to Christine and the boys at once, so I did what was apparently one of the worst things imaginable for a stroke survivor to do. I hopped on a series of flights lasting 24 hours. A doctor in the States scolded me for flying and told me I was lucky to be alive. He ran tests, wrote prescriptions, and advised me to stay away from the great pleasures, the three great pleasures of my old age, tennis, red wine, and Viagra. Hearing the doctor's advice, I was transported back to 1942. I remembered sitting in a waiting room at Johns Hopkins University Hospital in Baltimore. I could hear my father's voice through the door to the doctor's office after he had just been told that the best he could live with to do to live with multiple sclerosis was to cut out martinis, golf, and his pipe. I will never forget his response. Do you expect me to live in a vacuum tube, he said. I looked at the doctor. Have a nice day. And I walked out the door and into Christine's arms. Thank you. If I'd shut up and let's listen to you, it would have been better. <laughs> that's Well, thank you. Well, well that's you know, that's that's how this manuscript of the book ends. Um, obviously that's not what the story ends. Uh, and right now, what do you what are you doing day to day right now? What damage am I doing? Well, I, I mean, I, I I hope you're doing um, I hope you're doing tennis and red wine and Viagra. <laughs> tennis is a little not too great. The, the other stuff works. The uh, I think also that it's uh, I guess as much as uh, I can do damage to. Uh, Trump, I would do it because I think that he really destroyed much of his. But there's a lot of good in this country. I mean, you look at you look at almost every aspect of it, and when you see him throwing away the life breath of a lot of people in the world and other stuff he believes or says he believes, uh, I try to do some things there, and Christine tries. But we'll see. I'll settle for what I got. 
And do you have any any other closing thoughts that you want to give? Thank you. That's my thought. Thank you. Well, you you, you don't definitely don't have to thank me. Yes, um, I do. Well, one person I want to thank is I want to thank your son Charlie for for yeah. setting this up, and you know for sending me the manuscript and. But thank you, obviously, for coming on the podcast, and and more important, um, you know, thanks thanks for your service to our great country. Thanks for my citizenship, <laughs> Jack. That's right, the Irishman. Uh, and thanks for what you did after the military. Thanks for your service in government, and thank you for what you did—not just for this country, but for countries around the world like what you did in South Africa to try and help there and to try and do your best in your life to end suffering in the world. It's been an honor to sit down and talk with you and I thank you for coming on. You too. I think I've also incidentally, I'm very, not so incidentally, I'm very grateful you mentioned Charlie. He, the, the accuracy which I really strove for in there, uh, immense help from two other persons, Charlie and the research and, and editing and much of the writing and then Christine because uh, she reads back to me uh, some that I've written and if it rings false I can tell she looks at me the way you look at me so uh, but but it was really important to hear it this was important but earlier to hear Christine to hear to listen as I listened to you really was was very helpful I think it, it, I didn't understand what a podcast, what podcast was, and I understand now, and I understand the value of it also. Because, I mean, how many books are going to get written? But how many person might be hooked on listening to some of this thing and care some of the things which, which you put on? Not not just this program, but but the bulk of those. And and for me to get, I get deep, deep satisfaction to, I get your regimental order or whatever, and you read all that stuff. And Jesus Christ! Every time I get near a gym, it makes me nervous. But when I found out that, that salvation is my power naps, that was a hell of a deal. So, and I do. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming on. You too. I'm sorry to keep you so long. I've been forever. Oh, it's been an honor. Thank you. Thanks very much. And Charles Daly has left the building. And that... Just to FYI, that we were reading off of a manuscript for a book. So it's out there. Not sure what Charlie, which is Charles' son, Chuck's son, and they got that, that manuscript out there, but they have, it's, it's a, well, obviously we covered a little part of it. Mm. It's a lot bigger. Lots of stuff in there. It sort of felt like a Forrest Gump scenario. It did. You know, yeah. like just wild things happen. Yeah. Oh yeah, and just a crazy life. Yeah, um, but you know Charles Daly out there trying to make the world a better place, and I'm thinking, mm-hmm. if you want to make the world a better place, which I think we do, yeah. might as well start with yourself. Yourself in your own backyard. Yes. Front porch. Yes. Or what's the the deal? Your own AO. Area of operations. Make your own AO better. Yeah. You might have some ideas on how to do that. I do. Share. All right. Well, we are in, well, currently we're in Boston. Mm-hmm. Soon to be in Maine. Maine. Yes. For the Jiu-Jitsu Immersion Camp. Yes. With Origin. Okay. So, 
jujitsu. That's one of the ways we can keep our AO intact. Yes. To learn to improve our AO. Yeah. Multiple levels, yeah. multiple facets. The thing that's of good about the thing that's good is jujitsu will not just help you with your jujitsu. Correct. Jujitsu will help you with all aspects. All aspects. People on a daily basis start jujitsu and let us know, let me know, let you know that they started jujitsu. 97% of the time, they say, I started and it's awesome. Yeah. 3% of the time, maybe even less than that. I've only had, I can only think of two people that actually, they're like, I just don't like it. It's just not for me. Two people out of thousands. Mm-hmm. Think about that. Two people that said, I'm, I'm just not going to do it. Yeah. And there's the whole one that I said, there was one that said, I, you know, what if you just don't want to fight? Right. And I said, if you don't want to fight, the best thing you can do is no jujitsu. So what we're getting at is, yes, train jujitsu. Oh, yeah. And if you're going to train jujitsu, you're going to need a gi. Yep, because we do recommend gi and no gi mm-hmm. jujitsu. They're two different, different things. I think as time goes on, they become more and more like different from each other, which in my opinion is more of a reason to do both. Okay. Come on, back yep, in the day, yep. kind no, no, of no, no, early no. I said, okay, bro, why? Uh, I was about to just reinforce said, okay. the whole, no, the whole situation. We got people that are wrapping geese behind the neck, leg, whatever. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Some worm guard. Worm guard. Keenan Cornelius. Keenan. Yeah. Try, worm guard. Yeah, and that's it. And that's a system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Try yeah. do that, no gi. I don't even know if any of that applies to no gi. And try thinking, oh, well, how would you do that? Oh, that's how you do it. You know what yeah. I'm saying? Because remember when you got arm locked for the first time? Yes. And you're like, well, I'll just stop him from doing that. Yeah. But then you realize it's, you can't really stop it. Right. goes deep. Yeah. And then it's the same thing. People say, well, how would you actually get someone's gi over there? Yeah. But there's a whole there's setup. A whole system, man. Yeah. And that system is does not exist in no gi, certain ones. Some, some do. Some kind of do. So, so I'm saying there's like a big, yeah. you know, it's, it's, a, it's just very vast is what I'm saying. So when you get your gi, you're going to get an origin gi. Yeah, hundred mm-hmm. percent. Like you don't even have to ask anymore. No, everyone knows already. Get Origin Gi. It's a monopoly, really. Yeah, it's I a mean, monopoly on the market. Because really, what you're not going to get a different Gi. Is the monopoly and cornering the market the same thing? I guess. I guess you. I, I see your distinction. You're implying, and I accept it. Because the market is cornered, is what you're saying. Yes, I'm saying monopoly. Monopoly are, is like no choice. Like yeah. consumers, no choice, right? Monopoly. I'm kind of saying no choice, though. Oh, I don't know, man. You have look. There's it's like the choice between steak and bologna. <laughs> That's not really a choice. <laughs> well, there's like obvious choice, not to split hairs, but there's like obvious choice versus like kind of ridiculous choice you know it's like that kind it's like oh that's a that's an obviously good choice okay. versus an obviously so the obvious choice. good choice is get yourself an origin, origin gi, get yourself an origin rash guard get yourself some origin t-shirts and you know what you can do right now yes you can get yourself some origin jeans which i am wearing at this time you look good by the they're way they're so legit very fashionable they're, hey <laughs> back off i look functional very functional very functional very um Functional biz biz tack business is, tactical isn't that we did you guys make that up yes in life? Yeah. yes I like it man it flies unless so you they look business stuff. tactical any kind of clothing yeah check origin we got boots coming by the way yeah boots man, are those, coming those look good I mean man. I already have them I don't think you do yet because you're not quite on that inner circle no I'm not uh, intermediary <laughs> circle I got jeans though so boom anyway okay. go to originmain.com that's where you can get this stuff also supplements these are important supplements though. They're not the kind that like the guy at the local gym 
it's trying to pedal to you. It's made like 90% of chalk. It's not that. It's like the for real one that, that, that not only do they actually work, but you they kind of help your life. Yep. You see what I'm saying? Yep. So you got the joint warfare for your joints, krill oil for your joints, and, and general health. Mm-hmm. Uh, joint warfare is for that too. Also, discipline. Yep. It's for your mind. Guy at the airport, guy working at the airport straight up asking about it. There you go. Straight up. Asking about discipline. It's out of the blue. Ask good deal Dave Burke about discipline. Yeah. Ask JP about discipline. Yeah. See, what do, you, do you, what do you think of that stuff? I'll tell you all about it. <laughs> He's addicted. I feel yep. bad. Yep. So, yeah, there it is. If it wasn't considerably just honing their performance in all aspects, I'd feel bad. But I'm not because yeah. their performance is honed. Yeah. But JP, yeah. sniper. Dave Burke, fighter pilot. On the discipline. On the discipline. All right, cool. Also, don't forget about Molk because you're going to need extra protein when you jack big steel or you're training hard or whatever. You're going to need some extra protein. You might as well drink protein that tastes like a dessert. Like a dessert. So there's that. Get some Molk, all different flavors. They're all awesome. And get yourself some Jocko White tea. In the summertime, drink it cold. In the wintertime, you can drink it warm. If your throat is sore, you can have some warm Jocko White tea. If your deadlift is weak, you can Mm -hmm. have some Jocko White tea. Yeah, that'll help it big time. So there you go. All that stuff that we just talked about, originmain.com. Also, don't forget to wear your kid milk. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, when your kids... Back to school. Kids are back in school. They come home from school, they're starving. And they could eat some sugar-filled diabetes treat. Chocolate chip cookies. Yeah, or they could have a milk and get stronger. Yeah, hit all avenues of, yeah. uh, what do you call it? desire. Yeah. Is, is that the word? Nonetheless, yes, very good. Uh, kid approved, which is a good thing, of course. Uh, so, yeah, all at originmain.com. Also, Jocko is a store. It's called Jocko Store, and this is where we all get our shirts to represent the path. Deathcore, discipline equals freedom. The shirts that we're wearing at this time. Currently. Wearing them. Yeah. It's actually, at the end of the day, I mean, it's a few origin ones. Um, I have a Jody Middick one that I always wear. This is pretty much all Mm -hmm. I'm wearing. Mm -hmm. Approved. Yeah. Rash guards. Rash guards on there, big time. Truckers hats. Yep. Beanies. Dry fit. Dry fit, they're being produced. We'll we'll talk about that. They're coming. They're coming. Be on the lookout for that. Hoodies, lightweight, and... I wore the lightweight. What do you think? It looked good. Okay, next. Um, you didn't care that it looked good, but you thought it looked I good. I didn't That's think the, it all. Right, you thought it looked it good. It looked like a t-shirt that had long sleeves and a hood. That's what it looked like. Yeah, you liked it. <laughs> yeah, okay. Anyway, yeah, a lot of cool stuff on there. JockoStore.com. Good way to support you. Yeah, and support yourself. And represent while you're on the path. It's good to represent, okay. I think. My we opinion. saw the person representing on the UFC. Oh, yeah, big time. Yeah. Felt good. yeah. There he was. We all. It kind of felt like we were all at the UFC. Yeah, we were. A little bit. A yeah. little bit. Of us all right. Subscribe to the podcast if you don't already. iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever. Leave reviews if you want us to read them and get a good laugh out of your awesome review. Mm-hmm. Also, don't forget about the Warrior Kid podcast, good which one. is also available and good for kids, parents, teachers, adults, human beings. And there's some Warrior Kid soap you can get from irishoaksranch.com which is a young warrior kid making soap that you allows you to stay, to stay clean. clean. Oh yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, two flavors on that one, by the way. Fla- not flavors, sorry. 
two separate kinds of so, trooper soap, Jocko soap. Mm-hmm. That's what Aiden's making up there. Also, we have a YouTube channel, official YouTube channel, Jocko Podcast. You can see the video version of this podcast, of every podcast. You can see what Charles Daly looks like. Oh, yeah. Watch his reactions. Yeah. There's some emotional moments during that podcast. Right, some heavy. heavy moments. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's. Yeah, you could tell, man. He his like every step of his journey. You could tell he was caring about stuff. Oh, yeah, you know, like he was. Yeah, you could tell was, a lot of it was was affecting him from the beginning. Oh, good. You've also been making little excerpts. Excerpts. Yeah. Some of them are just a straight excerpt. Occasionally, you enhance the excerpt with things like cello music. Sometimes explosions. Yeah. Sometimes fire, yeah. smoke. Sometimes reflections. Sure. Pauses in my facial expressions. <laughs> Why would you do that? You're just like, I'm going to freeze your facial expression at this time. Oh, it, it wasn't frozen. The voice is still going on, but you're just sitting there. It wasn't frozen. It's kind of interesting. No, if you look close, which I, I uh, encourage you to do. Okay, yeah. this is what it is. When you're, okay, me and Dan, you're talking about the one that you're saying, um, you know, what, the trump card, right? Yeah, like, the trump card. Yeah, if yeah, you yeah. want to go drink, yeah, you know, yeah. rather than train, you're, then I don't want you on my, on my team. Okay, so when you were saying that, me mm. and Dave Burke, Good deal, Dave. We were <laughs> you just good deal, Dave, to yourself. Oh, man, got included. Got, got included, right? No, we're so we're watching you. So I'm like, okay, like this is this is different, right? Kind of. You were watching him watch me a little bit. I, I looked over at him. Oh yeah. So what was the expression like on his face? Uh, did you guys I, look at each other? Did you guys make eye contact? Not that I can remember. You were just watching him watch me. Okay. We were both kind of captivated in a okay. way. So Captivated. Hmm. In a way. In okay. a way. Okay. So what but I you thought You were detached is, enough to take a look and say like, is this hitting Dave Burke the way it's hitting me? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Fair uh, enough. Yeah. I mean, Fair that's kind of. So, um, so the reason I did that or we, the reason we put your, did your face like that or whatever is um, because when you're saying that. Like you give off a certain feeling, mm-hmm. you know, like even when you say a bunch of stuff, you give off a certain <laughs> feeling. So like as a person listening to it, it's like, what feeling am I getting? I mm-hmm. see what you're saying. Mm-hmm. And I even see here how you're saying, I dig it, man. But it gives you a certain feeling as a result. So I took that feeling and it was kind of a psychotic feeling. <laughs> so I took that psychotic feeling the best I could translate it graphically into the video. That's what it came out as. All right. So if you want to see graphic feelings expressed or not expressed subtly or maybe not so subtly, then you can check out the YouTube channel called Jocko Podcast. Also, we have Psychological Warfare, which is little audio clips that can help you through challenging moments of weakness that threaten your very existence every single day. You can go to iTunes, Google Play, or other MP3 platforms to download these fire support for your ears. That was good. Nothing you know what? To add. You know what? It's just go off script, bruh. That's what it is. Just go off script <laughs> no. sometimes. Well, but sometimes if you go to like you go off script and you'll get too esoteric, then I'll be like, hey, what if they never heard of psychological warfare? They don't know what that is. Still, sounded cool. Still don't know what it is. See what I'm saying? So you got to find the what do you call the Shit. dichotomy medium balance thing. Also, don't forget about flipsidecanvas.com where you have Dakota Meyer who is making graphic representations that will get inside your brain and keep you honed and on the path of discipline and will. Flipsidecanvas.com. Nothing else needs to be said on that one. (laughs) That was was good. Uh, And true, by the way. Also, don't forget about On It. 
onit.com slash Jocko. This is where you can get your kettlebells, your rings, your clubs, maces, battle ropes, all kinds of fitness equipment. Typical stuff and atypical. You like that atypical? Look at you off I, I said script. it. I said it. Look at you. Also, there's this immune one, Shroom Tech Immune. I'm just saying, I, mm-hmm. I brought that because, you know, when you get on the plane and stuff, mm-hmm. you, know, you got to get the immune system going because you don't want to get sick on the plane. All those germs, nonetheless. On it.com slash Jocko. Go there. Good stuff. There's also a bunch of books. I wrote a new book. It's called The Leadership Strategy and Tactics Field Manual. This is the absolute frontline pragmatic information of how to lead. You got a little problem. Here's how you actually solve that problem by following these actions. That's called Leadership Strategy and Tactics Field Manual. It is available for pre-order right now. And if you want to get that first edition, you better do it quick because you got guys like Andrew Paul who ordered 20 copies. <laughs> Guaranteed Sarah Armstrong's ordering 20 copies. JP ordered eight copies. He's probably going to step it up to 20, though, as soon as he hears this. <laughs> JP's competitive. He doesn't want to lose. Yeah. So first edition, Leadership Strategy and Tactics Field Manual. Pre-order it now. Also, Way of the Warrior Kid 3, Where There's a Will, that's available. Also, two and one are available. Mikey and the Dragons, best children's book, voted best children's book ever. Damn. Yep. In the world. Yep. Well, in my house. Yeah. Voted. Well, and yeah. well, by me. Mine and my wife. Too. Actually, way the word kid gets more reps in my house. Yeah. Yeah. Really. Gets more reps. Yes. Check. I'm not saying it's better. Yeah. I'm, it gets I'm more surprised because your kids are, are a little bit younger. Yeah. Well, they like the mowing the lawn part. Mm-hmm. And cool. So those books are available for kids. Mikey and the Dragons. Way the Warrior Kid, Mark's Mission, and Way the Warrior Kid 3, Where There's a Will. Also got Discipline Equals Freedom Field Manual, which, by the way, Charles Daly has read and approved. He called it something. He, he, he called he, it your manual. He, no, he, he said you're, you're something. He called it something like it sounded pretty official, too. I oh. liked what he called it. Oh, okay. I was kind of laughing because I knew exactly what he was talking yeah. about. And he was like, I, you know, I don't go near a gym or whatever. But. Nonetheless, yeah, he read it. Yeah, and he talked about the power naps because I listed there how to take a power nap, and he was like, that's what I do. I said, that's awesome. So that's available. It's also available not on Audible, but it is available audio through iTunes, Amazon Music, Google Play, other MP3s. We also got Extreme Ownership and the Dichotomy of Leadership, the two books that I wrote with my brother Leif Babin about leadership and how to take leadership from the battlefield and apply it to your business that you're running right now. We got Echelon Front, our leadership consultancy. We solve problems through leadership. That's what we do. Echelonfront.com for details on that. EF Online, this is online leadership training so that you can so that you can get consistent, repetitive and get the reps in. Like you just talked about getting the reps and you get the reps in. You have to make leadership decisions during that training, by the way. I don't know if you know that. I do, yeah. Yeah, you gotta make leadership decisions in that training, military and business. There's scenarios set up. Choose your own adventure. Yeah. Make a call. It could be wrong. If it's wrong, go back, start again. Yeah, and that's good about the reps too because you know how like, because a big part of what you kinda can't teach, even any, like you can't teach this part of it, even Mm -hmm. like, I guess in jujitsu you kind of can, but um, like you can't teach being in the actual scenario because you're emotional, you know? Mm. So like, if it's like, hey, you know, you gotta, you know, there's this situation, what are you gonna do? You're gonna, and I'm oversimplifying the, the scenario for sure. Are you gonna blame someone? Are you gonna take blame? Or are you gonna, 
take blame with an excuse kind of kind of options right but and it's like okay cool i know it i know it that's a good scenario but then, I've we, been see, in but scenarios. then we see people blaming other people oh, all the time oh yeah when all it comes down to it because when you're making when you're in that training or whatever you're making the decision you don't feel threatened yeah. you don't feel defensive you don't feel that you feel like okay i'm gonna get this answer right kind of thing so you know the information but now when it's come to e- time to execute you gotta you know yeah. you gotta contend with your emotions but when you get the reps and those scenarios are kind of readily available in your head Yep. Even though you're kind of feel defensive, you're like, oh, I know this scenario. In fact, I'm used to this scenario in my head. Yep. You know, you know what I'm saying. So well, it's more embedded. Also, the in there. more times you see a scenario, even if you even if you watch the same scenario twenty times, like let's say you watch a movie scenario unfold twenty times, it's and then you see something close to it, you're gonna be more apt to recognize it in the real world than if you just saw it in a movie scenario one time. Yes. Right? Correct, 100%. That's totally true. Um, also, we got the muster. Chicago done. It sold out. Denver coming up next, but guess what? It sold out. After that, December 4th and 5th in Sydney, Australia, that is the next muster that we're doing. ExtremeOwnership.com for details. If you want to come, please register now. Don't wait until it's sold out. And then send me a Twitter that says, didn't know you were coming. Sorry. Can you still get me in? Because guess what? I can't. The fire marshal won't allow it. Also, we have EF Overwatch, where we're taking proven leaders from spec ops and combat aviation and placing them into companies that need leadership in the civilian sector. Go to efoverwatch.com if you're on either end of that calculus. Whether you need a leader or whether you are a leader, go to efoverwatch.com so we can connect you together. And if you want to communicate more with us, it's, it's actually not that hard. You can find us on the interwebs. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. And we're on Danfajin Booking. Echo is at Echo Charles, and I am at Jocko Willink. And thanks once again to Charles Daly, to his son, Charlie, to his wife, Christine, that was here. Thanks, Chuck, for your service in the Marine Corps and in so many other marina arenas out there. And as a veteran of the forgotten war, the so-called forgotten war, I assure you that you and your comrades are not forgotten. And to the rest of the troops out there in uniform, thanks to you all as well for putting on that uniform and for protecting us from evil around the world. And to all the police and the law enforcement and the firefighters and the paramedics and the EMTs and the dispatchers and the correctional officers and the border patrol and secret service and all the first responders out there. Thank you for protecting us from evil here at home. And to everyone else that's listening, we just got to hear a story of a amazing life, the life of Charles and daily, a life that's still being lived from a book that is literally still being written just like life and think about that think about think about that life with so many stories and so much life so so don't hesitate don't hold back go and live your life go and write that story by going out every single day and getting after it and until next time this is echo and jocko